people I went to school with that I, maybe not friends that think I captured and killed a kid because that's how it was framed. I have the biggest Netflix documentary, the biggest story that should be everywhere, and I can't get it covered because the FBI keeps calling people up. They listen, will never, ever bring this to trial. I listen. guarantee you everything I have left, this prosecutor will never allow this to come before a trial. I'm dying, and I'm begging for help because the FBI keeps intimidating me. My life is on the line here, and they've destroyed my career. they destroyed my health. they destroyed my finances. I mean, everybody in the island knows I'm wanted. I've been front page news down here numerous times. When I Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen of the jury and your respected judge. I just want to let you know that I said this child was born in Pennsylvania, but oops, he's actually born in Tennessee. Who knew? And um, Mr. Howard was not in the United States in November, so he couldn't have taken him. Oops, who knew? And oh, by the way, on the FBI website where it says he's a former Titusville man, He's never lived in Titusville. He's never even spent a night there. That's where his ex-wife ran and kidnapped and hid the child with. Yeah, he's better off just having you stay there and dying. That's his plan. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be doing an interview with Chad Hauer. He is currently in St. Kitts. He lives in St. Kitts. He has been falsely accused of a crime, which he's not guilty of and we're going to get into a story it's super interesting and check it out i i, I kind of start at the beginning like i'll just talk a little bit about like you know where you were born and raised i i know um who were you working for when you were arrested by the way when i was arrested i was still contracting for microsoft so i have been a microsoft employee i have been a microsoft contractor I was a Microsoft regional director. I was a Microsoft regional developer advisor. I had a variety of roles at Microsoft from software development to government liaison to public speaking. I had a senior position at Microsoft. But by the time I was arrested, my ex was already causing a lot of issues. Stop that. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I, that was just a quick question. I was just curious. Okay. I remember I was like, I was like, who was a big company like Ford or. But anyway, Microsoft. I'm sorry. I, I want to. I want to kind of start at the beginning. Sorry. I want to like okay. where you were born. Uh, where okay. you were born, kind of raised, like how you, you know, were you in the military? Did you, you know, like what brought you to working there? What brought you to the situation? But let's start at the beginning, which is basically like where you were born. If you don't, okay. you know, yeah. And, and take your time, by the way. Take like don't rush through it. Like I'm not in a hurry. Okay. Well, I, I was born in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I grew up in towns called Erie and Edinburgh, both of which are in Erie County. And I lived there until 1994. And I left the state of Pennsylvania in 1994 because I started getting more successful in my career. And I also wanted out of the state of Pennsylvania because it's a highly bureaucratic state. And what, anybody who lives there. <laughs> sorry, what, what was the career? What Software development. Oh, okay. So I was starting to advance in my career. And especially at the time, Erie is a former industrial town. It's, you know, it's lost like almost half its population in the last 50 years or something. Right. It's squarely between Buffalo, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. I mean, it's dead center of the Rust Belt. And so, you know, there just weren't a lot of opportunities there. The economy wasn't fantastic. And Pennsylvania is an extremely bureaucratic state to live in. And I just didn't want to live there. So I had some job opportunities and we finally got out in around 1994. And I went to a few places on short-term contracts to uh, Texas, and then uh, we were going to move to Michigan. I was working in Michigan for a while uh, for Kelly Temporary Services at the headquarters. 
And then I got another job offer. So I actually left that job and we moved to Tennessee in 1995. And then I lived in Tennessee. I traveled while I was in Tennessee. Um, so we got married in 94 okay. and we still live in Pennsylvania. And then we moved out of Pennsylvania pretty soon after we got married and ended up in Tennessee in 1995. And our son was born in 1996. And other than travel, I stayed in Tennessee until 2001 when I left the United States. Um, even while in Tennessee, mm -hmm. go ahead. Who were you working for at that time? In 95, I was working for a company called Tennessee Eastman, which you may have heard of Eastman Kodak. And a lot of people don't realize that Eastman and Kodak actually separated into two companies uh, in the early 90s or sometime in the 80s. I don't remember exactly when. But they're actually separate companies. And Eastman was one of the largest chemical companies in the world at the time and still is. They're like the size of, you know, Dow Chemical, I think, was the only one that was larger. And their world headquarters is in Kingsport, Tennessee. And so they had uh, hired me and paid for us to move to Tennessee. And I worked at Tennessee Eastman for a while. And then it was a, a very nice company, very nice people. But the work was, I found it to be rather boring. So I started to look for other job opportunities. And I started working for the companies that I would start to travel. So I think the first company I worked for was in Connecticut. So I would go to Connecticut one week and then come back to Tennessee for a week. And my wife at the time, who I call Vecna, uh, that's my nickname for. I don't know if you watch Stranger Things or not, um, but Vecna is basically the 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 demon in Stranger Things, and I, I say it's the protector of privacy. So I'm not publishing her name all over the internet, although it's all over the court documents. So I call her Vecna. Right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, you know, we had a house in Tennessee, ten acres. She had um, she was in the horses. I bought her um, four miniature horses, and we bought a horse farm. And I commuted to Tennessee Eastman. And then after that, I said, I started working in Connecticut. So I'd go to Connecticut for a week and then I'd come home. So I'd go to Connecticut for five days, come home for nine, go to Connecticut for five, home for nine, that kind of arrangement. And then I ended up leaving that company, but I kept that similar arrangement. I ended up working for a company in South Carolina and I would drive because it wasn't that far. It was like two and a half hours to South Carolina. And it was the same type of arrangement, gone for five, home for nine, gone for five, home for nine. And then I did the same thing for a company in um, Texas and then Arizona and until 2001 when I left the United States. So in early 2001, um, she and I separated. It was really a marriage that should never have happened. We got married at uh, 19. And um, my son was born when I was 21. So it, it was really just a marriage that shouldn't have happened. Uh, we didn't really hate each other, but we were more friends than anything else. And But by 2001, there were some some cracks up here and it just wasn't going to work. Again, I didn't feel like we hated each other. So I was just like, well, you know, this just ain't working no more. Right. So uh, I said, let's just, let's call it quits and let's not put any more into this, you know. So um, I decided, well, when you say that things weren't bad, like, I mean, so you're not talking about like, there's the police are being called. There's no, no, no. It's just, no, we just, just not good together anymore. Yeah, well, we were never really good. We were just more friends that ended up getting married. I, I'm autistic, and I didn't know that until much, much later in life. I didn't know I was autistic till yeah, it was either last year or the year before. I can't remember, but it's in the last year or two I found out I was autistic. And we were more friends that just ended up getting married, basically, at 19. We never, we never really fought. We never, I can't remember a time. I mean, yeah, we had disagreements, but we never really had any sort of, not even like, verbal fights really and i mean even from her side there were never any accusations from her of any sort of violence verbal or physical none ever 
But by 2001, it just, you know, it, I, I kind of got this position and I thought, well, this is life. And I had been raised in such a way that when you're married, you stay married. Right. Right. And I just thought, well, it's my life. I got a kid. I like the kid. I, uh, you know, I've got a good job and she raises the kid. And, but by 2001, I just, I, I, I didn't want this for the rest of my life anymore. Right. So I said, okay, uh, let's just call it quits. And uh, I gave her the house. I gave her one of the cars, which was reasonably new at the time. It was, um, I think it was a, I have to look, but it was only like a couple of years old. It was in good shape. And um, I paid her like about $3,000 a month in alimony and um, child support for a few years. So she was set. Uh, and, I, and I thought, okay, we can just work this out, right? And since I didn't have a place to live, I actually... Uh, went and lived with her brother and his his wife, her brother and her sister in law, for about a month because I had nowhere to go. Um, in her in her parents' former home, actually, where we used to live when we first got married. And I had been already traveling overseas since 1997 for conferences, so I was already an international conference speaker, and I was quite well known. And I constantly had job offers. I mean, I, I was turning down job offers even when I was not looking for a job. In the 90s and 2000s, I was very successful in my career. And I was, I was one of the top people. And the IT industry was super hot back then. So I, I always had job opportunities. I'd already been traveling to Europe since several times a year since 1997 to speak at conferences. And I always wanted to live in Europe. And I, the only reason we never really moved is um, Vecna didn't want to move to Europe. And I got that. So that wasn't really, you know, I didn't hold that against anything. But since we were separated and I had no place to live, I, you know, started looking at the job offers I was getting. And pretty much right away, I got offers overseas. So I was like, okay, let, let's go. And plus, even the offers overseas, they didn't seem to care where, where I lived anyways. So I, I went overseas and um, I kept speaking to the conferences and... Uh, I just ended up, you know, working overseas and I would come back into the U S and I thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll finish this divorce up and everything will just be kind of amicable. And, um, you know, let's keep the child where he is because he was born in Tennessee. He was raised in Tennessee. That's the only house he had ever known was there in, in Tennessee, Eastern Tennessee. And I just thought that, you know, no judge is going to give me a, at the time, let's see, he was, he was still four. He hadn't had his fifth birthday yet. So he was four initially. Then I thought, you know, no judge is going to send a four-year-old overseas. And I'm not really in a position to provide full-time care for a four-year-old with my work. Right. And so um, there had been some issues of concern. But I, at that point, now this did change, but at that point, I never really had any concerns for his welfare. And so I just felt that she was really, at least at that stage, the best option. And so I thought, well, I was still traveling back to the U.S. a lot because I had conferences in the U.S. too. So wherever I was, they would fly me to the U.S. And I figured, well, when I come into the U.S. several times a year, I'll just book some extra days. I'll fly to Tennessee or drive to Tennessee, depending on wherever I am. And in the summers, I'll come and I'll spend time with him as I can. And as he gets older, I thought, okay, well, he can come in the summers with me. And I was really just quite naive about who she was. Because pretty much immediately, um, she started interfering right away. So initially, the divorce didn't happen right away. It took a little more than a year to get the divorce to go through because I was not living in the U.S. And divorce in the U.S. is a state law. And so when you're not a resident of any state, it makes it a little bit difficult. 
So I found a lawyer in Knoxville who would assist me. And I had to have her basically file for the divorce because I couldn't because I was no longer with the estate. And things started right away because we put together a, a parenting, a draft parenting plan. And it was basically along the lines of, you know, I'll call and, you know, she'll just let me on the phone. And when I come in the country, I'll give her, I don't remember the exact details of the original parenting plan, but it was something like, I'll give like two weeks notice when I'm coming in the country. And as long as it doesn't interfere with his schooling, then I would have certain visitation rights where I could pick him up and take him uh, for certain amounts. And it was like, there, there were certain time periods, like I could take him for 40, 72 hours. Or, there were, there were certain regulations, right? But I was just trying to work things out. I wasn't trying to, you know, cause any problems. And she just started right away with um, interfering. I would call and they would never be there. It would always go to the the answering machine or she would only let them talk for a minute. And there were already problems from the get-go. And Tennessee requires you, when you get a divorce and you have a child, you have to go to arbitration to try and resolve things instead of having to fight it out in the courts and waste the court's time. And that's a good thing. All right. So we went to arbitration and I remember this very clearly because the arbiter was a woman and she was just about to retire. This had been a career. I don't remember how long she'd been in arbitration, but it was a long time. It was decades. And she was retiring and we were one of her very last cases and we were in the arbitration and the arbiter asked her to leave the room and the arbiter talked to my lawyer and I, and she says, she says, I have never in my entire career, which spans decades, met someone so intransigent. And that's the word she used intransigent as your ex-wife. And she says, I'm going to do something for the first time in my entire career, which spanned decades. I'm going to tell the judge there is no arbitration and send you straight to the court. So it started getting ugly from the absolute get go. And I was bending over backwards to try and make sure that he saw both of us. And she just wanted nothing of it. Absolutely nothing. So that was, that was 2002 initially. And I'm trying to think because there was some in 2000, there was 2002 initially. I'm sorry. How old was he at this time? Well, 2002, he would have been five or six, depending on what, I I don't remember which, because his birthday's in June. Okay. So five or six. And then I got remarried. Uh, basically, when I was overseas, I, I met somebody, my current wife, who I've been married to for more than 20 years now and have two more kids with. So I'd met her. And because the divorce had taken quite a while, I was basically already hooked up with somebody and I was ready to be remarried. And whether or not I should have gotten remarried quickly or not, but it worked out. So I didn't win the first time, but I won the second time and I'm still happily married over 20 years later. Right. So we were basically waiting for the divorce to finish. And once it finished, then I got remarried pretty quickly after that because we were already just basically waiting on the divorce to finish. And I don't remember exactly when the divorce went through. I'd have to look, but I, I want to... Oh, no, I, it had to been 2002. It had to been... Um, I think it was sometime... Sometime the first time of 2002 is when it went through. And again, the parenting plan just wasn't working. So I would call... And they would never be there, or I'd get the answer machine, or he'd get on the phone for just a minute. I would fly into the U.S., and she would agree, okay, you're coming to the U.S., come for visitation. Come come pick them up, and you can have them for the weekend, according to the arrangement. I would come, and they wouldn't be home. And so it was like all these visitations. I don't remember how many there were, but it's only I can only remember 
two that actually succeeded initially. And even though she tried to interfere with him, it was just horribly nasty about that. And then she just kept interfering with the visitation. We had to go back to court a, no a number of times. Um, she just kept violating the visitation orders. And these weren't like me just showing up at the door. These were prearranged visits. Right. These were things according to the, like, hey, I've notified you however many weeks ahead of time it's specified, and you've already agreed to these visitations. So you certainly should be at the house when I come, right? And it was just a constant battle. So that went on for about two years. And in 2004, and I can look up the exact dates, so I'm going off memory, so I may not have the exact months when I'm working off memory, but I definitely have the years and, and the approximate month. So early, well, let's say mid-2004, um, June-ish maybe, I, I called and I'd been trying to call and they would never answer. And so one time I called and she was outside. She would leave him in the house a lot and go outside and deal with the horses. And that's fine. It's, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing that. That's, that's, that was perfectly appropriate. And, but one time I called and every time I got this, she'd be like, you know, Hey, it's dad. Um, you there? Can you pick up? And normally nothing, but he picked up and I was like, yo, cool. Yeah. Cause I couldn't get through. And he's like, Hey dad, what's up? And I'm like, so, you know, I haven't talked to you in a while. What's up? And he's like, we're moving to, and I hear the door open, get off the phone. And she slams the phone down. And all I can hear is we're moving to cherry. And, you know, I don't know where cherry is. And when you move you have to go before the court and tell the court you're moving. You can't just move, right? Right. And every state varies, and I, I have to look this up again, but I think in Tennessee it's either 30 or 60 days you have to notify the court. And they don't they don't generally stop you. I mean, they can. But generally it's like we just want to make sure that the parental rights are going to be transferred, everything's good, where the jurisdiction is going to go to, and the court just needs to know. And you can file objections, but generally, you know, generally it goes through. So she didn't do that. She didn't even tell me. Now, prior to this, a few months prior, and I don't remember when, but I think around March, sometime in the spring of 2004, she had, and I don't remember if it was an email or a letter, or because um, she didn't like to speak with me on the phone. So we mostly communicated by email. And because especially back then, living in Europe, and I was, I was traveling a lot, I was in Russia at that time, I think. So it's just a forum in Cyprus. We were, we were going between Russia and Cyprus back and forth between two places. But mail took a long time, especially in Russia. I mean, it could take like six to eight weeks sometimes, and sometimes never arrived. So we just replied, we relied a lot on email. But at one point she had mentioned, because neither of us was from Tennessee, and I love Tennessee, but she's like, I don't really have anything in Tennessee. So she was like, do you mind if we move closer back to her parents? Um, which is also where my parents at the time lived. Uh, we were both from Erie County, Pennsylvania. And I said, well... In principle, I'm, I'm open to the idea. I, I understand you don't have a buddy in Tennessee. Um, Alex has been raised there. Um, but if you think it's a better move, I'm certainly open to discussion about the matter. I made it very clear that it, it was not a, hey, move whatever you want. It was right. just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm amenable, okay? But it was always, hey, you know, let's discuss it when you think that might happen. Because the way she mentioned it was like, ah, sometime in the future. It yeah, was never like casual thought. Movement. Yeah. It was just like, what do you think? And so I was like, yeah, okay. And then, so when I get this, when I talked to him in a few, within a few months of that, uh, that discussion and he tells me, Hey, we're moving to cherry. And then she slams the phone down. I'm like, this is not, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
And given the history of her interference and all this other stuff, I, I knew I could see where things were going, but I didn't, I had no idea really where they were going, right? Because you just can't imagine what happened. So now I'm trying to figure out. So they stop answering their phone. Um, she's not answering me anymore. And then I get this letter. And she doesn't email. This is actually a letter. And she mails a letter to my mother and one of my sisters as well, telling them what a horrible human I am, among other things. Like, yeah, like, you, like you're going to turn my mom and my my mom and one of my sisters against me. How, how does that even make any sense, right? Right. And so we get this, I get this letter. And at the time, uh, she, she didn't like to communicate by email. So she stopped communicating by email. Sometimes she did. But generally what she would do was she would send letters to my mother's house. And my mom would fax them to me because it was the fastest way. Since she refused to talk to me on the phone and she didn't want to do email except when it was convenient, which usually it wasn't for her for some reason. So she insisted on using mail. So I said, okay, well, I can't wait six to eight weeks for a letter that may or may not arrive. And I may have moved. I may be traveling. So I made a good letter. Just start sending my mom's house. So I bought my mom a fax machine and she would send letters to my mom's house. My mom would fax them to me. I would fax letters to my mom and my mom would mail them to her. And my mom became the post office for us, right? So I'd have to check, but I believe this letter came to my mom's house. If I remember correctly, she sent two letters, one to my mom, one to me. One to my mom complaining about me and what a horrible human I was and trying to take her child away and this stuff. And I can provide you with all of these, by the way. I have all So far, hasn't the, the you taking your child away so far hasn't even been an issue. No. And here's, here's the best part. So we get these letters, and they're all postmarked Pittsburgh. Now, keep in mind, she lives in Tennessee, as far as we know, but we get these letters postmarked Pittsburgh. And the letter to me basically says, um, we've moved. I'm not going to tell you where. We've moved somewhere in Ohio, New York, or Pennsylvania. And uh, if you want to talk to me, you can use my mom's address, her mom's address. So she's kidnapped him at this point. Right. Um, now, once I found out they were moving to Cherry... I didn't know where Cherry was, but it's before when she talked about moving, she had mentioned that she would, she was looking, she was thinking about Eastern Ohio, North, uh, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, or Western New York, because she wanted the Raymond rule. You ever watch Everybody Loves Raymond? Yeah. Okay. There's an episode when they, um, when they first start looking for a house, they're still living in Deborah's apartment and she lives in Long Island and he's explaining to her, she's like, yeah, we should live near your parents. And he's like, no. <laughs> no, he's like, listen, we need the spaghetti rule. He's like, we need to live close enough that we can get to their house and visit, but we can come home the same day. We don't have to spend the night with them. Right. But we lived, we need to live far enough away that they can't, when they arrive, the spaghetti sauce isn't hot anymore. So they won't be over all the time. And so she has a complex history with her own family and she doesn't get along with most of her family, her brothers, sisters. She just, she doesn't get along with them. She got along with her mother mostly, but her mother actually sided with us most of the time. And I talked to her mother almost uh, at least every other month until she passed away a few years ago. And her mother was a great woman. So she wanted it and she hated her stepdad. She absolutely despised her stepdad. So she wanted, I knew that she would be the Raymond rule. I knew that she would probably be around two hours from where her her mom and stepdad lived so that they wouldn't be over all the time, but that they could come the same type day thing. So that kind of gave me an idea, but that's still a pretty big area. I'm still searching an area larger than a lot of European countries. 
And so we get this letter. Oh, sorry, before the letter. Okay, before the letter. So he says we're moving to Cherry. So the first thing I did was I start searching these areas for every town called Cherry. But before I even did that, I contacted the court and we filed in the Knox County Court in Tennessee that she was planning to move and that she hadn't appeared before the court. So the court issued her an injunction and it did not tell her she could not leave the state of Tennessee. What it told her was you have to come before the court before you leave. And it set a court date. And she was served with this notice in Tennessee. So she was still in Tennessee and she was served with a notice to appear before the court. And the court date wasn't that far off. It was like a month or something from when she was served, maybe even less. So plenty of time. Yeah. The court date came and she didn't show up at the court. And then we got a letter that she's moved to Pennsylvania, but she's not telling me where. Right. Okay. And that letter, I would have to look it up. Um, if you want me to look all these up, I am at the computer, but it'll take a little time to look them up. But off memory, September 2004. Okay. Okay. And again, it just says, I'm not going to tell you where we are. And it basically says, I'm not going to give you a phone number. If you want to contact us, send mail to my mom's house. Not my mom, her mom. And uh, we'll contact you when we feel like it. It actually said that. That's made up the exact words, but because the judge quoted this later. So it was basically, hey, bugger off, we'll contact you when we feel like it. And it was postmarked Pittsburgh. So the court hearing came and she didn't show up. So now I had to fly back to the United States and try and find my son. So I couldn't book a last minute ticket. They're very expensive. I had to arrange my work schedule, that kind of stuff. But, and this is 2004. Now I've been on the internet since 1986, but that's very rare. 2004, yeah, I mean, some people had the internet, but you know, the internet, it's not the internet of today where everything's online. Okay. Google right. Maps wasn't what you, you know, it's not what you're used to today. No, no, yeah. I remember in 2004, I was using, um, was it uh, MapQuest? Remember MapQuest you would print okay. out? Yeah, yeah. And, but if you remember, even back then, MapQuest wasn't as detailed as the maps are today. Yeah, it could get you from a city to a city, but if you wanted to get to some farm in Pennsylvania, it probably wasn't going to get you closer than the city, right? Right. So the details weren't there. So now I'm searching Cherry, Pennsylvania, Cherry, Ohio, Cherry, New York. And let me tell you, there are a ton of towns called Cherry something. Right. Cherry Tree, Cherry Hill, Cherry Station, Cherry B. I don't know. There's all these places called Cherry. So now, you know, and I'm left and the school districts aren't all online at this point. So I'm like, well, he's got to be in school, right? It's September. She can't keep him out of school. So my strategy was start calling up all the schools that I can find. And, but most of these schools don't have email at this time. So I'm having to fax. So I'd call them and they're like, okay, you got to fax us a quarter to prove you're the father and fax us identities before we even talk to you. And so, and I'm calling all over Ohio and all over Pennsylvania and New York and, you know, just not getting much luck. So I just finally start calling the county level stuff, right? So I just start calling Erie County, Crawford County, or, you know, all these different counties. And just, to, I call the school administration. Instead of targeting the schools, I'm going directly at the higher level, right? School district level stuff. And there's still several school districts per county, but I just start calling all these school districts. And so I finally start calling ones in Venango County, which I had no, I, I never thought she'd move to Venango County. That's two counties away from Erie County. It's not a place that had ever been discussed, ever. 
It's not a place that she ever had any ties to. It's not a place that I ever had any ties to. Neither had any ties to Venango County whatsoever. But I was running out of options. And so I finally called this one school district. And um, they're like, well, we can't tell anything, but why don't you fax over your orders and then we'll see what we can tell you. And I'm like, that sounds interesting, right? And so I had all these things ready because I'd already been faxing around. So I faxed it over and they're like, call us back and call us back tomorrow. So I call back and they're like, yes, your son has been enrolled in a school called Cherry Tree. It's in Cherry Tree Township. Now in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania subdivides, not all states do this, but in Pennsylvania, what they do is if you're not living inside of an incorporated city, like in Tennessee, if you don't live in an incorporated town or city, you just live in the county, right? Right. Pennsylvania doesn't work that way. Pennsylvania will subdivide the non-township, the non-town areas into what are called townships. And they're basically municipal administrations for people that live in the country. So she had moved to a place called Cherry Tree Township, which is not on most maps because it's not a town. Right. And so I found, so they said, yeah, your son's enrolled in Cherry Tree Elementary. So like, okay, bingo. So now we know where to go. So I get a lawyer in Pennsylvania. And uh, we start working on that, but we still don't know where she lives. So we can't serve her because I have no address. So all I know is that she is in the Cherry Tree Township within Venango County, Pennsylvania. But still, Cherry Tree Township is a rather large geographical area. I mean, it's not countryside, but it's, you know, it's not like showing up in a town of a thousand people looking for your son. Right. So we, my, uh, my new wife and I fly to the United States. Um, we stay with my mom who lives in, um, at that time she lived in Crawford County, which is gen, it's, these are all Northwest ish Pennsylvania counties. Okay. So we stay with my mom and we go to the school and, um, the school is very hostile to me, uh, from the get go. They're, they're extremely hostile. So I'm, you know, I'm just like, listen, I'm not trying to cause any problems here. I've got the court orders. I've shown you that she's abducted him. The court has said she wasn't allowed to leave the state of Tennessee. I'm not asking anything special. I just want to see my son. And this, and the school's like, no, absolutely no. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And they just wouldn't tell me anything. They wouldn't give me his address. They wouldn't even let me see him. Nothing. Like not even like peeking in the classroom on him. They were just hostile. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So we um, we got the Pennsylvania lawyer. We went to Venango County, went before Judge White. And he's like, you know, young lady, you can't stop. And so he, you know, and the school student, so the school said, well, get an order. So I had to go to the judge and get an order to allow me to see my son at the school. And then she objected. Uh, so we had to have the police um, come to the school. So I was only allowed to see him if I went with police. So they called the Venango County Sheriff's Office and they arranged a time. On what grounds is she, is she, um, you know, fighting this? You know, what, what, what grounds? At this point, she didn't declare any yet. I'll get to when she started declaring stuff. But so far, she has declared no grounds. None. 
not before the judge or anything. She just raises objections. So we go and we visit the school. The Venango County Sheriff sent uh, a deputy. Oh, I think two of them. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. But there was a, a car and some police. And so they, they put me into this, like, I don't know, it's some kind of room, some kind of room at the school with a table. It's not really a conference room, but like, I don't know, the teachers, could be the teachers break off. I, I don't know what it is, but the teacher's lounge or something. And so the police are there and they bring in my son and he's shaking. He's just shaking. And he's like, no, he's going to kidnap me. <laughs> and the school, so this is when it all starts coming out. And the school's like, we were instructed you would kidnap him, and that's why the police are here and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I, uh, if you look at what's happened, I am not the one who has kidnapped him. And they're just like, well, she told us you were going to kidnap him and all this other stuff, and they were just, they continued to be hostile. But they did let me speak with him, but he really wouldn't talk to me. He just wouldn't say much. So... I'm like, uh, you know, I, I, I said, I need his address and they wouldn't give me a school file. They wouldn't give me anything. And eventually, I don't remember how it worked out, but I, I basically convinced them that they, I had a right to see his school file. And so I opened a school file and the first page is his address. So of course I wrote that down. Now I have a place to serve her. Right. So we go back to the judge and all this stuff. And now we get, um, so Tennessee is now issued an order finding her in contempt for not showing up to the court hearing. And they've, they've held her in contempt and they tell her basically we're, we're asked, we're, I don't know the proper legal term, but they're, they're, they're calling her to court again. They're saying, right. you didn't come to the first one. You are in contempt. You need to come to Tennessee before the court and answer for your contempt. And if you want to move, go through the procedures. Right. And she was like, no, I'm in Pennsylvania. You judge her in Tennessee. I mean, literally, it was just like that. So we go to the Pennsylvania judge. Pennsylvania judge communicates with the Tennessee judge. He calls him, gets him on the phone, goes back and forth, and he issues an order ordering her to go back to Tennessee before the judge. And she told the Pennsylvania judge, she told right. him. I mean, she didn't actually do the finger. You, I'm, I'm dramatizing a little bit here. But she told the Pennsylvania judge, no. So the Pennsylvania judge said, okay, you want to play, do you? So the, ten the Pennsylvania judge the Pennsylvania judge gave me custody, temporary custody. And she again said, eh. so the judge is like, you really want to play, do you? So he called the Vanningo County police again and had them remove him from the house under her protest. So they've gone into her house and taken him out with her screaming at the police. Now, she wouldn't let me go near the house, so I agreed to wait down the road at, uh, there was, they have all these ice cream shops, and it was, it was winterish, so it was closed. So I'm like, okay. I told the police, I'm not trying to create any drama here. I'll park up the road. I met the police there, and they're like, okay, we're going to go get your son now. Just wait here. I'm like, okay. So I wait there. They go up the road. They take him out of the house against her will, against her protest. Bring him to me. Now he's mine, right? Right. So now I've got him for that was by the time all this happened that was december that was just before christmas it was a like december it was a few days before christmas i can look at the exact date but now we're in december just for christmas 2004 she's had him in pennsylvania for a little more than two months she's had him there illegally okay he's not been in pennsylvania legally he's been there in pennsylvania about two months 
And already the Pennsylvania judge is already starting to get along a lot of the dates wrong in his court order. He's already starting to make a lot of mistakes, but they're not critical at this point. Okay. But they do show his, uh, he's starting out to be very sloppy from the beginning. He cites the wrong day that she moved the wrong month, even, and things like that. But Hey, I'm getting custody. I'm not going to nitpick at the judge, right? He built some of the nation's largest banks out of an estimated $55 million because $50 million wasn't enough and $60 million seemed excessive. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crimes, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. So... We get him and my whole family, we go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and we stay there for a week, have like a family reunion. And then we went, we moved to Tennessee again. And my, my second wife and I, we rented a place. Uh, we went to Tennessee before school had to start. We enrolled him in school in Tennessee again, and he attended school in Tennessee. Since she kept ignoring Tennessee orders, the judge in Tennessee sent another hearing for March... I don't remember the exact date, but it was the middle of March. I want to say March 15th, 2005. And the Pennsylvania judge told her, listen, lady, you better show up because I'm giving the the father custody. And that's the only way he knew he would show up. So we're living in Tennessee and we're basically waiting until this March, mid-March court hearing to resolve her actions. Right. During this time, my son has started to warm back up to me and um, started to tell me some things. And so we put him into therapy, weekly therapy. I think it might even be bi-weekly. It was at least weekly because he's, he's developed some real issues. And we find out a lot of things. Um, let me go back to a story first because this is related. So the first thing where I started kind of getting some notifications that she was becoming very possessive because until we had the child, she was normal-ish. Uh, but one time when he was around four, this would have been a little before he separated, there was this grocery store in Eastern Tennessee called Food City. It's just a big grocery store. They even sponsor the 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 Bristol Five, the Bristol NASCAR races and stuff. They're they're really big in East Tennessee, and they had this food fair every year. And it was either free or you pay like a dollar or two to get in. And all the food vendors giving away ice cream and popcorn and candy. And my son loved it. I mean, it was like, and when he when he saw it on TV, he's like, "Dad, let's go to the food fair." And we had gone the year before, and for some reason, Vecna didn't want to go. And so I was just like, okay, well, Alex and I will go. And she's like, no, you are not taking my son without me. I'm like, it's just up the road. <laughs> it's a few miles. Right. Uh, we're just going to come back. To- and we were so married. We hadn't, there was not even talk of, not even talk of separation, nothing. I'm like, listen, we're married. It's our kid. I'm just going up the road. And she's like, no, you cannot go. You cannot take my son. And she's like, you cannot take my son. I'm like, but he really wanted to go. So I was like, well, screw it. I'll take a wrath when I come home. Because she was never really known for just like screaming or having, you know, just mean wrath. I mean, she might get upset, but never really go off on me, right? So, I mean, she had a, like a mean, even her family knew she had like a mean streak. She was just, but she'd get angry, but she wouldn't like scream or just, to- she just might get a little, a little meanish, right? Right. So she was very quick to get a little bit meanish, but it usually never went very far. And so I took him. And I remember because I have pictures somewhere. And he's I'm holding him on. He's on, sitting on my shoulders. He's got ice cream, and I can remember because I had he had ice cream dripping into my hair. I had a little bit of hair at the time, 
because people at the food city food fair are like you must you like you have ice cream in your hair i'm like yeah i know but you know i'll take a shower and i get home and everything was cool and he came home and he came home we had a grocery bag full of candy and granola bars and everything they're giving out and he loved it and she was waiting for me at the door and she was so hot she's this is the first time i'd ever seen her do anything like this she's like don't you ever take my son without my permission and, and you know this was actually when i started thinking about hmm this might be you know this this there's some troubles here we might want to I was starting to starting to think a little bit about separation at this point. So that was one thing that happened before we separated. But when I got him, he started telling me other stories. So at first, he he wouldn't come out of his bedroom because we'd rented an apartment. And he was every time he'd go in his bedroom, he would just cry, cry. And it took me a long time to get out of him what was going on. And um they had all these horses and she had like 30 cats and she had like 20 dogs and she worked at the, she had volunteered at the humane society. And later on, she, she took a job there and she used to take my son. Cats. What's that? She had 30 cats. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Even when I lived there, she had like 30 cats. Yeah. Yeah. They were cats. Not everywhere. in the house. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. Well, I got photos. Yeah. I got photos. My son one time took a bunch of cats and put them in a dump truck and run around the house. They'd play dead because they didn't want to follow the dump truck. So, yeah, maybe it's only 20, okay? But there were a lot of cats. There were a right. lot of cats, okay? Maybe it wasn't 30, but there were probably at least 20. <laughs> and I'm not joking with that. There were probably right. at least 20. I can name some of them. There was one cat, because we had this large bathroom that was like the size of a small bedroom. And we had one cat as territory that would never leave the bathroom. So we had to put food and uh, kitty litter in the bathroom. It just never left the bathroom. No other cats went in there. Just mm -hmm. territorial. And so... But it was a 10-acre horse farm, too. So my son was used to running around the horse farm on his own. and But we had, she had a bunch of dogs, too. I don't know how many dogs, like five or six, five or six dogs, right? And at this point, remember, I'm sending her $3,000 a month, approximately. And this is in 2003, 2004 dollars. So that's probably at least $5,000 today. And her house payment was $600. And the house was fairly paid down. The car was paid off. So basically, she had no debt other than a $600 house payment, which included insurance and taxes, by the way. So right. she should have been able to live on $3,000 or $5,000 equivalent today. Right. But she had these horses, and she had babies, and she had about six horses, and she wasn't the fantastic best with money, so she was having trouble living on that money. And she used to take my son to the Humane Society, even when we were still together, and because he enjoyed the dogs and the cats there, and it was good for him. But he knew from a very early age, what happened to dogs and cats that don't get adopted, right? They get put down. And she did it on a regular basis, and she was very pragmatic about it, and she just explained to him, you know, we can't feed everybody, this is what happens. Well, out of all the pets that they had, all the horses, he had one dog, and I have photos of it. Um, I was going through the photos the other day, and I found it, found some. I lost a lot of photos pre-2008 or 2009, but I still have a lot. I still have probably thousands. So he had one dog, and the dog, well, it had a name, but his name was Black Dog. That was the dog's name. It was a black dog, and he called it, it was a black lab type thing, and he called it Black Dog. He was, he would go outside, and this was like Lassie to him, right? He'd run all over the horse farm, and the dog followed him everywhere. This was his buddy. And the dog wasn't that old. It wasn't in the bad of shape. And I come to find out, sorry, it... I'm not very emotional because I'm autistic. I've delayed emotional processing, but this is the one story that just, it always gets me. So after a long time, a lot of coaxing, he says, black dog is dead. And I'm like, what happened to black dog? Because I mean, I knew black dog. I mean, I right. black dog was there when I lived there. 
And, you know, all the dogs were cool. I mean, I, I'm a dog. I'm a dog cat person. I mean, we have three dogs here. We had three cats. We have two now. We've got a rabbit. We had some fish. I mean, we had, a, we had two goats. So we have pets here. And But, of course, and so he says, um, Mom took Black Dog to the Humane Society and put it down. And I said, why? Was, was Black Dog sick? Because I said Black Dog wasn't that old. Black Dog at that time would have been... No, six or seven, which is mid-age for a dog, but, you know, not exactly old, especially a mid, mid-sized dog like that. They usually live 13 to 15 years. And he says, mom said, you don't send enough money for dog food. So we had to put him down. <laughs> and I was like, she is how, and I asked, how many horses does she have? Right. Six. I'm like, you know how much horses cost to feed, especially in the winter, you know? And so that's when we started putting him in therapy. And there were a lot of stories like that, although that was probably the worst one. So at that point, I knew how manipulative she really had become. Right. When you kill your own son's dog and you make sure he knows, and then you tell him that it was because dad doesn't send enough money for dog food, and I'm sending her today's equivalent of about $5,000 a month, and she has no debt except a $612 house payment. I mean, I was gonna say it's it's it. Look, it's not hard to to turn a, a child away from someone anyway. So it's just a, a little comment there, a little comment there. You know what I mean? Like you could, you know, you that you know, you get you get um um shoot, what are they Stockholm syndrome? You know, like you know, it's not hard to put the blame on somebody else. So yeah, I can definitely see that. So he's in school, January. February, March, he's calling his mother regularly. I'm making sure that he calls her several times a week. You know, we're sending her copies of his schoolwork and his report cards. And, you know, I'm basically bending over backwards to to do everything. All the things she wasn't doing for you. Yeah. And my my second wife is pregnant at this point. So we can't stay in the U.S. forever. And we're just waiting out this March hearing, right? And plus... My wife's on a visa, so she only can stay in the U.S. six months anyways. So the court hearing is literally like right before, a week or two before her visa expires. So we're really up against the wall with everything. Plus, we need to either stay and have the child there or leave. And we applied for an extension. Now, I'm a U.S. citizen, a born U.S. citizen. My wife was on a visa because they would not give us a green card because we told them we do not intend to live in the U.S. Because every time we try to get the visa, the U.S. embassy is nasty, by the way. They're mean. You, everybody thinks, oh, the U.S. embassies, when you're abroad, they're your place to go. No, it's like the International Department of Motor Vehicles. They're generally unfriendly, right. hostile. Sometimes you'll find a consular officer who's generally friendly, but as a whole, they're generally hostile, especially to foreigners, especially to foreigners. So my wife, we, she had been to the U.S. before. It wasn't the first trip. She had a multi-year, multi-entry visa. It wasn't a big deal, but we did not have a green card, and we specifically told the United States we don't want one. We live in Europe. My wife is a Russian lawyer and does corporate law. And we don't want to live there. So, but we did ask because my wife is pregnant. And so we wrote to immigration and we said, listen, my wife's pregnant. I'm a U.S. citizen. We didn't apply for a green card, but we have these court hearings. Can we have an extension? And they're like, no. So again, the U.S. government is just not playing friendly at all. And this is not something specific to me, I don't think. They're just, they're like just a lot of people. So the court hearing comes March, mid-March. Okay. And she shows up. This is in Knox County, Tennessee. And we go through the whole court hearing and I have the transcripts and you need to read the transcripts from this date. 
You okay. need to read these. If there are two things you only read, you read the transcripts from March and the transcripts from October because the judge is literally yelling at her because she's lying. He knows she's lying. She's come in. She has made all kinds of crazy claims and she's just flat out lying. And so the judge in Tennessee is like, you know, lady, I'm not. So they ask, basically ask us, what do we want? And I'm like, well, I've tried everything. So send them with me overseas and I'll send them back for the summers. And the judge is like, I'm not quite ready to do that. And so he asked her what she wanted. She's like, I want full custody and the father never to see him. <laughs> the judge is like, that's not workable. And he's like, so since the two of you can't come to an agreement, I'm going to decide. So what the judge decides is because prior, I wasn't allowed to take him out of the country. I mean, I could take him to Canada and small stuff like that, but I wasn't allowed to like move overseas with him and I never did. So the judge said, here's what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to, the mother's going to get custody back because I had custody at this point. So he's going to transfer custody back to the mother. And he's now going to order him to come with me overseas for the summer. So I don't have to come to the U.S. to visit him. He's going to fly overseas and I'm going to pay for it. And I have one other opportunity throughout the school year during vacations. I can pick Christmas or Easter or something. And if I pay for it, then he can come overseas on those days too. And I was like, okay, that's acceptable to me. And he told her though, and this is all in the transcript. I mean, he was really mean, but he's, he's always, listen, lady, you were in contempt of my court, not once, but multiple times. You took off. You could have come to the court and you just, you just left. You didn't tell anybody where you're going. This letter makes it very clear. We'll contact you when we want you and that kind of stuff. He was hot. And he told her, he says, listen, I don't want to see you in my courtroom again. If you appear in my courtroom on a violation again, I will transfer custody to the father. Period. End of story. And she's like, yes, whatever. Just give me the child. So she got the child. She took him back to Pennsylvania. And June, early June, school finished, so he's supposed to come overseas with me. At this point, this was 2000, summer 2005, so I was in, I think I was in Turkey at this point, because I was working for Microsoft, and when I was at Microsoft, we were between Turkey and Cyprus, because the headquarters was in Turkey, but we had our home in Cyprus, and we had a home, and they paid for our house in Turkey, too. So we were in the process of moving to Turkey. I think by then we were moved to Turkey already. I'm quite sure. Yeah. By then we were moved to Turkey. So it had been Turkey. Paid for the flight, had the flight booked. And then she's like, you can't make me apply for his passport. You can't do it. And so we're like, oh my gosh. So now we have to get an order. So the Pennsylvania judge issued an order ordering her to get the passport. And she's running down the clock too, because you can't just get a passport in like three days, right? Right. And so we get an order for the passport and we're running out of time. We are really running against time. And then she's like, I don't have the money. I'm like, oh, okay. So now I have to like express a check to her to pay for this. And she finally complies and applies for the passport. And the passport arrives just in time. I mean, it arrives like, I don't remember. I mean, not long before he's supposed to leave. And, but... She's like, well, I can't be bothered to take him to the airport. It's too much trouble. So I'm like, okay, I'll have somebody pick him up. So my stepdad, because my mother is blind, but my stepdad's like, my stepdad's always been helpful. Okay, I didn't grow up with him. He didn't even come into my life until I was close to, I was like mid to late 20s. So I did not grow up with him. 
but I've gotten to know him. He's still with my mom. He's always helped my mom out. He's always helped me out. And I've helped him out too. But the point is, listen, I, I consider him part of the family, even though I never grew up with him. So he, he goes to pick them up at the arranged time. He has communicated with her. We have her phone number now because the court's like, you got to give us a phone number because she still don't get the phone number. So, we, and so my dad, my stepdad's communicated. It's all prearranged. My stepdad shows up. They're not home. So now I'm at a 1200 and some dollar plane ticket, $1,300, I think. And again, that's, you know, 2004, 2005 money. So let's say $2,000 today. I'm out that. We don't know where they are. He's not in the plane. So it's back to court again, right? So we file in Tennessee because at this point, Tennessee still has jurisdiction because for jurisdiction to transfer between states for child custody, a child has to live in another state for six months and they have to live in that state legally, not kidnapped. Right. And some limitations don't count. And also the court has to explicitly transfer it. So you have to go before the one, the court where you wanted to go to and say, I want you to assume jurisdiction. They have to communicate with a prior court of jurisdiction and they have to agree to transfer it. This is all law. Okay. So it's still in Tennessee because he was only in Pennsylvania. He was in Pennsylvania in 2004 for two months, but he was kidnapped. So it wasn't six months and he right. was there legally. So now he's been in Pennsylvania from mid-March until early June. So he's been in Pennsylvania two and a half months legally, but now she's withholding him. So we file in Tennessee because that's the court of record and that's the court that had issued the last order. So in August, there's a court hearing in Tennessee and the judge is like, and she's ordered to show up. She doesn't show up again. She does not show up to Tennessee court. And I can look up the date. I believe it was August 12th or 14th, mid-August. She doesn't show up. And the judge is like, well, I told the young lady, I told Miss Oberlander what was going to happen. So I'm transferring custody. So a father's got full custody, period. But she's in Pennsylvania and she's again like, so we have to go back to the Pennsylvania court again. So the Pennsylvania court is like, Tennessee still has jurisdiction. Pennsylvania is not involved in this case yet. And he orders her, he should have ordered her to comply with the Tennessee order, but he didn't. He's like, well, I want the judge to give her another chance because she didn't show up to the court hearing. And I'm like, yeah, you know why she didn't? He says, because she wasn't at the court hearing, so it's not fair because she couldn't defend herself. I'm like, well, she knew about it. She chose not to show up. It's not my fault she didn't show up to the court hearing, right? right. And this yeah. is really important because she, there are so many court hearings she never showed up to, okay? So the judge, he kind of comes to a compromise. He communicates with the judge in Tennessee, and he convinces the judge in Tennessee to hold another hearing. The judge in Tennessee is pissed off now. I mean, he is flaming Cheeto pissed off because she's ignored at least three of his court hearings so far. He's already transferred custody. He's warned her what he's going to do, and she has given him the bird every time. But he agrees to hold another hearing, and it's for October, mid-October, I believe, Again, mid-October, you'll find it, right. okay? If you don't have the docs. We sent you the docs or not yet. Okay, we can send you all the docs. The judge orders another hearing for October, and this time I'm flying back to the U.S. Again, interfering in my job. Um, now I'm with Microsoft. Now I'm full-time. Like, before I was contracting, it was easier for me to flex my schedule. Right. But now I'm a full-time employee, and I have been. So it's really hard to flex my schedule now. It's really quite difficult. So... And the judge in Pennsylvania orders her again. He says, you have to go to Tennessee and you have to take the child with you. You can't just show up on your own. You can't send a lawyer. You need to go to this court hearing. And so she actually does this time. 
because the Pennsylvania judge is yelling at her too. Right. And it's the same judge as before. So she shows up in Tennessee and she lies. I mean, and the judge is so pissed off at her and she's flat out lying. She's like, I don't have a lawyer because her lawyers kept quitting on her because she would lie to her lawyers and they would quit, including her female lawyers. I'm not trying to play the misogynist, man, right. whatever, but she had some male lawyers, some female lawyers, but even her female lawyers were quitting on her. And so her previous lawyer was a, a male, I think is I think this was Martin. Uh, I don't remember his first name. So she shows up in court and she starts talking crap about her previous lawyer. She's like, oh, my lawyer didn't tell me this. My lawyer didn't that, nah, nah, nah. And the judge is like, I know your lawyer quite well, lady. He's a lawyer in this county and I deal with your lawyer all the time. I've known this lawyer for 10 years. This does not sound like Mr. Martin. And she's like, well, all I can tell you is that's what happened. And the judge is like, I don't believe any of this. So he says, we're going to hold the, we're going to have a recess. We're going to break for lunch for a few hours. And he gets uh, the police type person that's in the courtroom, I think is the bailiff. I don't know if that's a proper title. Yeah. So the bailiff, he turns to the bailiff and he says, um, I want you to find her lawyer, Mr. Martin, and you're going to call him to the court. If he's in the county, you call him into the court and tell him he is to appear before the court at 2 p.m. or whatever lunch finished, right? So we take a break, go get lunch, whatever, and her lawyer shows up at 2 o'clock. The judge puts her lawyer, who is no longer her lawyer, onto the stand. Right. And he asked her, he says, listen, if I put your lawyer on the stand, are you going to claim attorney-client privilege? And she's like, what's that mean? And he's like, are you going to tell your lawyer he can't say that? She's like, no, my lawyer can say whatever he wants. And so he gets her lawyer, puts him on the stand as a witness, and he contradicts everything she said. Everything. In fact, the judge is like, she said this before the break. And he's like, that's not true. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. I mean, her lawyer flat out said she was lying. Right. So now the judge, I mean, he's like, you know, take a flaming hot Dorito, plant it in Chernobyl and mix it with a potato grown there hot type thing. Okay. He's like nuclear core hot. And you can see in the transcript. And um, so basically the end result is he's like, listen, I already transferred custody in August. You didn't show up again. I don't know why we're having this hearing. I only did it because Judge White thought we should have another hearing. So I'm here. I went through the motions. But if anything, my decision has only been affirmed by what I see here. The father has custody. You get him in the summers. That's it. Go away. If I ever see you in my court for so much as a parking ticket, you will be in jail. Now, this was family court in Pennsylvania. This, Tennessee has separate courts, so he didn't handle traffic tickets. But you get my idea, right? Yeah. And, and she's all mad and so forth. So she's like, and then she asked me, well, can we take him to the zoo to visit with him before you leave? And I'm like, no, I'm not letting you out of the courthouse with him. Um, so basically I got him and, uh, I flew back to Turkey with him. And so now he's living in Turkey. And so it's October, 2005 and I enroll him in school. Microsoft pays for all my benefits. So they're paying for a private school, $15,000 a year. And again, 2005, so let's call it 20 or 25,000 today. She starts filing all kinds of claims that he's in an inappropriate substandard level of education. He's in a prestigious international school that costs $15,000 a year and she's making these claims, right? Right. So despite this, I'm making him call her because he doesn't necessarily want to call her every week. I'm like, no, you got to call your mom. And she's sending him letters and she's communicating. I'm sending her schoolwork. I'm sending her because I was traveling the world this time. So my son got to go to Greece, Italy, Malaysia, 
Russia, Switzerland, Belgium, Germany. I mean, my son has traveled all over Europe. How old he is he? So, uh, well, at that point, he was nine. Okay. So he's seen the world. He's been to the Eiffel Tower. He's been all, you know, he's been all over Europe. And if we left the house for so much as 24 hours, I had an international cell phone. I had a Skype number, which was US, which I maintained for her so she didn't have to pay for international calling. She could call our US, num our US Skype number. I bent over backwards to maintain communication. If we left the house for so much as 24 hours, if he even spent the night at a friend's house, I would inform her. I would inform her he is spending the night at a friend's house this weekend. Here's the address of his friend up the street. If we went to Athens, I would give her the hotel address and phone number. Plus she had my cell, plus she had my email, plus she had my U.S. number. She was never without contact for him. I mean, I was just literally dotting every I, dotting, crossing every T because I knew what she was like. I And I have copies of most of these letters. I mean, I have all of them, but I have copies of some of these letters for sure. Everything. Right. So mostly everything goes okay, 2005, 2006. Now, 2006 comes, and it's time for her summer visitation. So now it's early June 2006. We haven't even gotten to the exciting stuff yet. I'm just giving you all the background. Okay. Um, so now it's June 2006, right? Right. And I've, uh, I have to go to the United States for Microsoft, which I did a lot anyways. I would go for Microsoft and other things. So I always had these flights. So I just made my ticket fly like a, a day or two early and it matched up with the time he had to be in Pennsylvania. So we flew together from Turkey to Boston and in some TikToks, I'd mentioned that I'd gone to Seattle, but that was, I learned as I was going through the pictures of the day, it wasn't actually a Seattle trip. This was a Boston trip. Um, the Seattle trip was earlier. So I had to go to Microsoft. I had to go to Boston for Microsoft for a week. So we both went to Boston. I stayed in Boston for a week. And then I left Boston mid-June. And this is all in immigration records. The FBI has proven this. I have not been in the United States since mid-June 2006. And I was only there for one week. And I was in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. Okay. So from Boston, I paid for him to go flying to Cleveland. I paid for a flight escort because he was, uh, he was, his birthday was coming soon. So he was either nine or 10. He was, his birthday, his 10th birthday was right around then because his birthday is early June. So he maybe just turned 10 or was about to in a day or so. So he's basically 10. And I paid for an escort to fly him to Cleveland. And then in Cleveland, I don't remember if my parents picked him up or her parents or how, but basically he got to her. Okay. And just because Cleveland Erie is a small airport and where she was in Titusville, there's no airport. So, you know, whether it's Pittsburgh or wherever, it's it, it's going to be a drive to an airport no matter where. So got him to Cleveland and then he got on to where she was living in Titusville. And then it started right away. I would call, wouldn't answer. So basically, I didn't get to talk to him all summer. I would call, never answer, never anything, the same stuff. And I knew, we always knew that this summer was going to be a problem. We, we knew, but I was going to comply with it. I always complied with the orders. I complied with every order to a T. You will never find any court filing that I violated any Tennessee order. You will not even find an allegation that I violated any Tennessee orders. And they don't exist. Right. Because I was so, I can't, don't know the right word for, but um, I was still, yeah, that might be the right word. I was going to say neurotic, but that's not the right word. <laughs> yeah. But I was overly careful about applying of complying with everything, even though I knew she wouldn't. So we knew there was going to be trouble. 
but I thought she'd let me talk about it. So then mid-August, my lawyer in Pennsylvania finds out there's a, a court petition been filed in Venango County against me. And there's a whole laundry list of things she says about me, none of which are true. Says I was mugged, says our house was broken into, says we were, I mean, just literally makes up stuff. That now, what you does, Yeah, she claims I was mugged in Turkey. Okay. Um, I mean, what she does, is, what it does is it proves that my son has, that I've communicated with her because my second son needed surgery. So when we were in Turkey, we had, we stayed in a hospital for about a week and in, they didn't have any parking in the hospital. So I just parked down the road. And so we left the car for a week and it was a, it was a leased car. It wasn't mine. Microsoft paid for it. And we came back, the back window was smashed and nothing was stolen. The car wasn't damaged. It wasn't in the car. And there were some Turkish dudes sitting on the porch of a, of a house there. And I just asked them, this is, oh, yeah, they said a couple of days ago, somebody came and smashed windows of all the cars in the street. And really wasn't a big incident, right? Well, she turned that into an international and Turkey is unsafe and I'm not having him in an appropriate environment. He's in a substandard school and just comes up with insane number of things. She ends like Cyprus is near Syria and there's currently a war in Syria because um, Israel was Israel was one of the time Israel had dropped some bombs in uh, Syria or Lebanon or something. And she was making a big thing. I'm like, first of all, we're not in Cyprus right now. Second of all, Cyprus is a member of the European Union. And it's separated from Syria by about a hundred and some miles of the Mediterranean. Okay. Right. Cyprus is not in any danger whatsoever. There's no way Israel is going to be like, oops, I bombed Cyprus. Right. A member of the European Union. So but she just literally, I mean, just absolutely ludicrous things she's coming up with. But what it does do is because the kernel of some of the stuff is true, it proves that I've been communicating to her everything. I even told her about the car. I mean, I told her all this stuff. Right. And now she claims that. Europe is an unsafe place for a child, for an American child to live. Okay. Whatever. And she wants right. custody and she's not going to return him at the end of the summer. And she waits till the very last minute. She could have filed this in June, but no, she waits till like right, like two weeks before he's supposed to be on a plane. Right. So Judge White, the same judge in Pennsylvania. So Judge White is Pennsylvania. Judge Fanzler is Tennessee. These are the only two judges involved so far, but there's a lot more. So Judge White says, well, I'm going to hear the petition. So the child's supposed to be in the play on September 2nd. So I'm going to set a hearing for our, um, August 31st. And um, I don't remember if you ordered me to attend or not, but I'm, like, I'm overseas. And I'm like, listen, I've got a job at Microsoft. I live in Turkey. I left the United States in early 2001. I can't just quit my job and show up at your courtroom in like 10 days. Right. So... My lawyer filed, says, I can't show up. It's, it's unreasonable. There's no personal jurisdiction over me anyways. They don't have jurisdiction over the case anyways because, oh, here's another detail. In 2005, when I got full custody, remember I had initial custody in 2004 when I got full custody in 2005. After the judge was really upset at her, first of all, he did order, he not only did he give me custody, but he ordered the child to move overseas because he knew he overseas. In the court order, it says the child is to travel overseas to live. Right. The father is allowed to apply and renew for the child's passport without the mother's uh, approval because she had been blocking before. And because of the history of this case and the mother's noncompliance in the orders and the father's residence overseas, that and because the child was born in Tennessee, lived in Tennessee, and the court is intimately involved with this case, the state of Tennessee will hold jurisdiction over this case until the child is 18. Now, I actually asked the court for that, and here's why. If I hadn't asked for that, according to the international treaties, 
which the U.S. government is uh, a member, which is a signatory to, and does apply to the states as well. Jurisdiction would have transferred to Cyprus at that point. Because you can't, I mean, if a child lives overseas and doesn't live in, especially, you know, doesn't live, the, the states can't be just like, oh, well, Alaska is going to get involved in this child, right? So, I mean, countries have rights in these things. So Cyprus had, <clears throat> Cyprus would have gained jurisdiction, not in the initial order, but before summer 2006, Cyprus normally would have been the home jurisdiction for custody disputes. Right. But I didn't feel it would be fair to her to make her dispute anything in Cyprus. So I asked the judge. Well, actually, it was a kind of a combination. But anyways, we agreed with the judge that Tennessee would be the future place to resolve any issues. And it's in the court order. It explicitly says. And they did hold jurisdiction to these 18. We have court hearings up until the year 2012 in, in Tennessee proving they were holding jurisdiction. Okay, so the so Pennsylvania judge uh, August thirty first has this hearing. He's like, okay, the father couldn't show up. I get that. Um, and she's like, I'm not returning him. And the judge is like, the Tennessee order is valid. Tennessee still has jurisdiction, and you have to comply with the Tennessee order. And she's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Now she's flipping the bird to the Pennsylvania judge again. So the judge ordered her to hand him over. There's a specific order to hand him over to my parents again and she didn't want to do again so the police had to get involved and police had to remove him and he ended up coming back to cyprus okay because we'd moved back to cyprus at this point we were always legally residing in cyprus but we had gone to turkey short term but we always had the house in cyprus we we had a house in cyprus since 2002 okay and so that was our legal residence and um, my wife had a business there. And so we had all these ties. My son was already enrolled in a Cypress school, um, which he had attended before. Um, so it wasn't the first time. So he's enrolled in a private school in Cyprus, again, a private English school. And so the judge says, you got to put him on a plane, lady. So he, she and the police take him. He's on a plane September 2nd, 2006. And he arrives back in Cyprus September 3rd. And I have the passport stamps. I have the court orders, all this. And we're like, okay, well, that's good. Well, now she somehow gets the judge to issue another order. So September 6th or something, I forget exactly when it was. She tells the judge that my son was born in Pennsylvania and her parents live in Venango County, neither of which are true. Her parents have never lived in Venango County. And in the corridor, in an order, it says that my son was born in Crawford County, Pennsylvania, which isn't even Venango County. So it's not even the same county as the judge is in. Right. But he's saying this and he's saying, well, since the child is overseas, and he was born in Pennsylvania, I can take jurisdiction now. He can't because, uh, first of all, I have custody. Tennessee said they hold jurisdiction he's 18. He's not lived in Pennsylvania for six months because summer visitations do not count, and he was only there less than three months anyways. So he uses this fact that her parents live in Venango County and that he was born in Crawford County, Pennsylvania, and takes jurisdiction. But the problem is neither of those are true. Okay. My son's not born in Pennsylvania. So the judge has no basis to take mm -hmm. jurisdiction whatsoever. And if you're going to take jurisdiction, you have to communicate with the previous court of record of jurisdiction. He doesn't do that. He does not contact the Tennessee judge. Now, this is the same Tennessee judge he talked to in 2004 numerous times and 2005. So he knows the judge in Tennessee. He knows the case. He knows all this. And he's just like, okay. So now, for some reason, he says, I have to show up to court again. It's like, dude, what's going on here, right? 
he's giving me short notice to fly to Pennsylvania from halfway around the world. And so we, we object. And he's like, okay, well, you don't have to appear, but your son has to appear. And you're like, you want me to take my son out of school and fly him on short notice back to Pennsylvania without me? And you said he was born in Pennsylvania? So we object to all this. We object he's not born in Pennsylvania. I do send lawyers, all that stuff. So I don't show up. The judge said I show up, but I didn't send my son. So the judge gets pissed off. My lawyer objected. He was not born in Pennsylvania. Her parents didn't live in Venango County. You have not contacted the judge in Tennessee. You don't have jurisdiction. He's not lived there six months, nothing. So the judge gets pissed off. So what he does is he- so The lawyer tells him all this and oh, he yeah. gets all of that. Yeah, yeah. So what the judge does is he finds an obscure provision to take what's called emergency jurisdiction. The problem is even to do that, he doesn't have, he doesn't have the jurisdiction to do it because a child was not born in Pennsylvania. He doesn't even have the jurisdiction to do this. Right. Now that was November 6th. Okay. Now my son was not in the United States. Now the thing is, if he took emergency jurisdiction because he was considering all these points that she made about Turkey and Cyprus was so dangerous that it's not a proper place for the child to live. But she'd made these claims in August. He had a hearing in August and he didn't decide to act on any of them. If he had any concerns for the child's welfare, he could have held the child at that point. I mean, it would still be illegal, but you would think that what a judge would do is hold the child at that point, not right. have the police remove him from her and put him on a plane back and then hold the hearing Two months later. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. And so what? That he would, it, it, he, he should have done it at that time. Yes. Even then he didn't have the jurisdiction though. Okay. So I want you to understand, even is then he did not have the jurisdiction. Senile? Is he senile or? He's been, a, he's been on the bench since the late sixties. Yeah. He's just, he's a cowboy. He's in a rural county. Where there's only two judges. He's a senior judge. He is the absolute shit king of the county. Well, you have to think, I, I've seen where literally judges are in their 70s and 80s, and they are wheel, they wheel them into the, uh, into the courtroom in, um, you know, in their wheelchair. They have like a ramp. They ramp them up. They put them in it. They, they sit down. The, their, um, you know, their, their clerk will tell them what's happening, like what yep. they're doing. And He's then not, they was not far off that at that point. He yeah, was, like, like it's like literally, they have no clue what. Yeah, he would have. He was. He was in his sixties at the time, if not seventies. Okay. So yeah, he he's seen. He's pretty old. I mean, All right. so yeah, for something that really does require mental, you know. Yeah, but he's just a cowboy. He's pissed off. So he doesn't right do any of this. So we think, okay, well, what can we do? So what he does is he he issues a temporary order, an interlocutory order. And he does all this intentionally. Here's the wickedness of this. He knows what he's doing. He knows that he cannot issue a final order. So he issues an interlocutory order. And here's why he did this. Interlocutory orders in the state of Pennsylvania are unappealable. You cannot appeal them. So now he stuck me with an order. So what he did is he says, well, the mother has temporary custody until the father appears before the court. So he's done to me what he did to her twice before. Right. Well, no, he only he'll, well he only gave me custody once, so he only did that once before. But he ordered a court. So basically, he's like, well, the father didn't show up to court, but the he had no jurisdiction to order me to court. I mean, uh, if 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 China tomorrow's order, if China tomorrow calls you and says you're to show up in China two weeks from now, and you've never lived in China, and we're saying this because your son was born in China, you're like, my son was not born in China. I mean, right. we knew what was going on in the beginning, but I'm sending lawyers the whole time, right? 
So I'm sending representation. It's not like I'm ignoring the court. So what he does on November 6th, and he's like, well, the mother has temporary custody. And so we're like, okay. So we, we try and fight it. He holds another hearing for December 27th. And again, I, I can't, I don't show, but I send a lawyer and he's like, okay, well, nothing changed. So he issues um, a bench warrant for me. Or not, not, it's not even a bench warrant yet, I figure it is, but he, he issues something to order me to come to court. And I, I don't, because I'm like, we object to the whole time. There's no jurisdiction, none of this. I live overseas. Um, I'm not ignoring the court, but none of this is just whatsoever. Right. We're trying, and we try and appeal the order, by the way. So we try and appeal the order. I think you had 30 days. So we appeal the order. They deny the appeal because it's an interlocutor order. They actually say, you cannot appeal interlocutor orders. You cannot. Right. So, and he's done this on purpose. He knew exactly what he did day one. So now December comes along and um, her phone no longer is working because I'm still having, through all this, my son's still calling her. Um, I forget, it was like twice a week or something. I mean, it was very vigilant. I was very good about this. And her phone gets disconnected. And I, so it's Christmas, the lawyer's on vacation. So when I have a copy, this January 13th, 2007, my lawyer sends a letter to her lawyer and I could copy all this saying, uh, her phone's been disconnected. It's making it difficult for her son to communicate with her. Can you give us a, a new phone number? Because without a phone, there's no way for him to reach her, right? I mean, yeah, he could send mail, but I'm having trouble getting the child to talk to her on the phone every week, twice a week. You think he's going to sit down and write a letter that's going to take eight weeks to get to her? Right. Right? So she never responds. She never gives us a telephone number. Nothing. And then the mail that I'm sending starts coming back as undeliverable. So now I have no phone and no address for her. Right? Okay. So now June 2007 comes around and it's time for her, her summer visitation. The problem is I don't know where she's at and she's got a conflicting court order. So if I send him, I'm never going to see him again. Right. Because the Tennessee order is still standing. So now we have two orders from two different states that are conflicting. It is impossible to be in compliance with both these orders. And one of them is not only illegitimate, but it's a temporary order. So Tennessee is a permanent final order. So it is impossible to comply with two states having conflicting orders. So we figure, okay, well, we can't send them. So what we're going to do is we're not going to send them for 2007. I will be in violation of the Tennessee order. But if that's the case, she has to go to Tennessee to say I'm in violation, right? Have you guys, yeah, have you ever mentioned any of this to Tennessee? Like this is what's happening in the other state? Yeah, I'll get to that. Okay, sorry. Yeah, that's no, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, we mentioned all this, so. Plus, she's been told if she goes back, she's going to be in, she's going to spend some time in jail, whether or night or whatever. So she never goes back to Tennessee. Never. Right. Never. Um, but if I'm in violation of Tennessee order, that's the only place that can, that can find me in violation. She can't go to Wisconsin or Alaska or Canada and say I'm in violation of Tennessee order. She has to go to Tennessee, right? Unless the order has been adopted into a new place, which it has not been. Okay. So we have no contact for her, no phone, no, uh, some mail. I think I started sending to her mom's house or something, but we had some limited communication. And I basically, you know, basically like, well, you have conflicting orders. If you, if you have any issues with my actions, take it up with Tennessee was our position. That was our position. Always our position. Communicated by me, communicated by lawyers to her lawyers. Always my position is that, yes, I did not send him in 2007, 
because it was impossible. I don't know where she is. I don't have contact. She refuses. And you have conflicting orders. These orders need to be resolved. Okay? Right. So then 2007 passes and nothing really happens. And then I don't know if this, there are some other things that happened, but I don't remember. It was either late 2007 or early 2008. I don't have the exact dates on these, but it was late 2007 or 2008. So the first thing is um, the Pennsylvania State Police call my mother, who lives in Pennsylvania, but not in Venango County. She lives in Crawford County, which is nearby, but not the same county. And she gets a call from the state police. And the state police have a kidnapping report. And they would like to speak to me. And they've been given my mother's telephone number. Which is stupid because Nancy, or Vecna, still has my U.S. phone number. She could have given the state police my direct contact. But she chooses to involve my mother for some reason. So my mom calls me and she's like, uh, state police want to talk to you. They said you kidnapped your son. Ha ha. And... Um, so I, I called the guy, and it was in Benango County. I don't remember the Titusville Barracks or whatever, and I speak to the, the state police officer. And he's like, wow, I'm surprised you called me. I'm like, well, why wouldn't I? She says, I have a report from your ex-wife that you took your son from her house. And I'm like, that would be pretty difficult considering I'm not in the United States, and I haven't been for um, well over a year now, and I have full custody of my son. And he's like, well, why don't you send me over copies of the court orders? And uh, so I sent him over, and I asked him, I said, Listen, here's what's going on. Can you at least file, uh, can you charge her with filing a false kidnapping report? And I don't know if she explicitly told him I came into the house or just led him to believe that, but he was definitely under the impression. He was, he, when I called him, he did not know it was a custody, he knew there was a custody issue, but he did not know that the judge had sent him overseas. Remember, the last time he was in the United States, a judge ordered him to be on a plane by police. Right. So if anybody kidnapped him, it's the judge or the police. I don't know how this stuff works, but. I, you know, the, the state police officer was not under the impression he didn't know about that. He was under the impression he knew there was a custody issue. He knew his father, but he was under the impression that I somehow physically secured him from the house, whether or not she explicitly told him that or just led him to believe it. That was his, that was his belief and he was investigating it. Right. And so I said, can you at least charge her the file with following a file, false kidnapping report? Because she's continually harassing me. I don't even know where she is right now. And he's like, no, she's just a distraught mother. He says, I've not officially filed the report yet. I'm just at the investigatory report, investigatory stage. So I'm just going to put this report aside and not file it. And I'm like, mm. you know, but I'm still just like, okay, maybe she'll go to Tennessee, right? So then, um, and I have a bunch of the return letters, by the way. She not only, not only for some of them under Louisville, but even before she moved, she, start re she started refusing them. I got, because I would send them certified. I, because I knew it was going on. So I would start, because once they started to come back, I started sending certified or registered, whatever it is that you have to personally sign for it. Yeah. Right. And one of them came back, not undeliverable, refused. She refused the letter flat out. And I have a copy of this, so I'll get right. all this. And so I'm still just thinking, okay, where's it going from here? But I'm thinking, okay, the Pennsylvania state police, I explained it to him. It's going to go away. Some point she's going to have to go to Tennessee. This is it. She's not going to do any more crap and we're just living our life, right? So then sometime, and I don't remember, this would have had to have been prior to April 2008. So this was probably early 2008 at this point. The FBI, two FBI agents show up at my mom's house. Now the FBI is involved, right? Right. 
So now the FBI shows up at my mom's house and tells my blind mother, who can barely walk because has multiple sclerosis at this point. She later was in a wheelchair. Now she's in a hospital bed. But at this point, she could still stand up with a leg brace. Basically tries to intimidate my mother and tells her, if you don't cooperate, I don't care if you're blind, we can take you away. No, not my mom's like, I. Yeah, and my mom's like, I live in a town of 3,000 people. I'm a pillar of the community. Go ahead and do that and see what happens. Because my mom is really well known. She works with charities. I mean, the whole town knew her. Right. And my mom was literally like, yeah, let's go. I mean, she wasn't quite that, but she was, she was intimating to them that it would not look good for them to do it. And so they, they kind of got the clue and eventually left. So then I get a call from my lawyer in Tennessee. And my lawyer says, I just got a call from the FBI. And my lawyer in Tennessee, in Knoxville, was one of the senior lawyers. He'd been practicing for about 10 years. He wasn't like in his 60s, I think, but he was a prominent lawyer. Right. And he says, I've never had the FBI call me before. He says, I've never been so scared in my life. I thought about dropping your case and they want me to, but I'm not going to. What a fuck. Jesus. Like, that's how you know we live in a police state. Then they start calling my friends. Yeah. In Pennsylvania. I start getting Facebook messages from like, yo, dude, what the fuck did you do? The FBI was just at my door. Or I just got a call from the FBI. And I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? So I had at this point figured something was going on. And I had a Google alert. They don't really, they don't really work anymore. But back in these days, you could go to Google and you could put in a search term and it would notify you every time you popped up. And because when I was at Microsoft, they used to make a joke about me. They're like, just Google the dude. He's got over a million hits. And now I don't anymore. But there used to be over a million hits on me in Google because I was a, I was a really a top person in my career. And when I went to Microsoft, they actually targeted me for a hire. I was a targeted hire. So I didn't go to them. I turned them down numerous times and they finally got me with enough money. All right. So I decided, well, let's put a Google alert out on my son just in case something pops up. Right. Right. So we find out, um... April 1st, my lawyer, oh, sorry, my lawyer gets a notification that April 1st, 2008, April Fool's Day, she went back to the Pennsylvania judge and got a bench warrant for me, okay? Not for kidnapping, not for anything, just a bench warrant, a bench warrant for a failure to appear to his court nearly two years earlier. That's it, a bench warrant, nothing else, a clear bench warrant. Okay. And... I'm like, oh shit, okay, now I got a bench warrant. Well, I still can't do anything about any of this. And my lawyer tries to fight it, and the judge is like, no, bench warrant. She then takes the bench warrant to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It turns out the FBI is coaching her and helping her this whole time, including the state police. The state police, the FBI told her to call the state police first. And Nick Mick and FBI, I'm not sure who's the lead, but between Nick Mick and the FBI, the two of them are working together to coordinate this bullshit kidnapping. And they know it's bullshit the entire time. So within a week of that bench warrant, she takes that bench warrant and takes it to Nick Mick and uses the bench warrant to fly, to get him listed. And I have the original poster. I have several of his posters all throughout the years. So Googler pops up like April 8th or something. Now he's listed as a missing child. And it doesn't say that. He says, it says he was last seen in Titusville and he was kidnapped November 6th and he may be in the company of his father in Cyprus, Russia, or Bahrain. I forget because they changed a little bit over the years, but... It basically says, we don't know where he is. He might be in Cyprus. He might be in Bahrain. He might be in Russia. And he might be with his father. And he was taken November 6, 2006. That's what it says. Right? Even though you've been in, even in the States since oh. months prior to that. Yeah, it never mentions anything else. And it says, if you have any questions, call the FBI or 911. So now we know shit's really hitting the fan. Right? But we're still just like, well... 
go to Tennessee, go to Tennessee. And we're getting federal lawyers. We're talking to everybody. And everybody's like, well, hope she shows up in Tennessee. Hope she shows up in Tennessee. And again, I still had no contact. Oh, and also in early 2008, um, I put a Google alert out on her too. So I've been watching to see if she pops up. Her house goes up for sheriff's sale. So she lost she the house. Was actually, yeah. So she would actually been kicked out of the house a while before. And that's why the mail was coming back. But now it's up for sheriff's sale. She couldn't even keep the house. So now I definitely, I mean, I've got nothing on her, right? This all happened in early 2008. And so again, 2008, summer comes. I can't send them because, I mean, but my position always was because her lawyer would ask my lawyer, we're like, listen, because her lawyer would be like, the father's in violation of the Tennessee order. And we're like, well, then take it up with Tennessee. That's always, always our position. We never had any position other than take it up with Tennessee, take it up with Tennessee. So then 2008 comes and again, I can't send them again. Um, 2000, some, you know, then 2009 comes. Now we moved to St. Kitts in early 2008 and the FBI always knew this. And I've, I've, I have provided, in fact, I made TikToks recently about it. I have court records that they have filed that show that they knew when we moved to St. Kitts. Cause I never notified her to move to St. Kitts. Cause I don't know where she's at. I have no way to communicate with her. I only have her mother's address and I am not obligated to communicate through her mother's address. Given every obstruction she's put in the way, I'm just like, that's it. Right. Right. So yes, I did not tell her we moved to St. Kitts. But she had my U.S. phone number. She had my Skype number. She had my email. She had ways to contact us. She was in communication with my lawyer. So they had ways to communicate with us. Whether or not we were here. Sorry, what is your TikTok account? Um, Kudzu the Raccoon. Okay. All right. And I'll put it, I'll put it, we'll put it in the description. If you, yeah, please. If you go to our website, alexisnotmissing.com, all my social media is linked there. But TikTok is my primary. I have uh, 3.7 million likes. I had 8.9 million views this week. Nice. I had four videos in the last week over 1 million. Two of them are over two, three of them over 2 million now. So those are 1.1 1, 1. 1 million, 1.8 million, 2.4 million, 2.5 million, all from the last week. Okay. So, and I'm starting up YouTube and Instagram. I have those as well, but they're just starting. So now um, uh, we are where? 2000. Okay. So we moved to, we moved to St. Kitts. Yes, she does not know we are here, but she has all our kind of information and I have no way to reach her, okay? Right. But the FBI knows we're here and I knew they knew we were here. We were never hiding, as the DA says, and I have court records proving that they knew we were here from March 2008, okay? Because they put it in court filings. They put it that immigrate, they said immigration records show that he flew to St. Kitts on March 14, 2008. I mean, they knew. They always right. knew. So he's still listed. They know where he's at, but they say, even in the poster, so they know we're in St. Kitts. But the poster says they may be in Cyprus, Bahrain, or Russia. Why is that? No sense at all. So yeah. we were here before that poster was filed. Okay, before that poster existed. So the poster goes up. So now we're like, oh, okay, this is a bit of a mess. But we're same thing. Go to Tennessee. So she at one point she'd filed child support against me. They tried to revoke my passport. Um, so I had to pay up five thousand dollars. That they had conflicting. Conflicting support order. So I she was I have a support order from Tennessee, which she's never paid a dime. She owes me like forty thousand dollars in child support. The Pennsylvania judge is blocking it. But at one point he said I owed her for like six months or some crap. And just to keep my passport, because you live abroad, they cancel your passport, you are toast. Right. You end up back in the US. So I could not do that because I needed to work. So I was like, screw it. So I just sent a check for three thousand or five thousand or whatever it was just to keep my passport. And then the judge never assessed child support on me again. So if she has custody all these years, why didn't he even assess child support on me? And why did Tennessee continue to assess child support till he's 18, right? 
So by then, um, my wife was actually, my wife had, um, my wife had second kid citizenship and we decided to move here because we needed a, we, we had a second child. We were about to, uh, we were planning on having a third and we couldn't travel with all the kids. So we decided let's settle down. She's got second kid citizenship. Let's go to second kids. They speak English. It's safe. They have good schools. Everything just worked. I was only living in the Caribbean. So let's go. Right. Because in Cyprus, they speak Greek and Russia, Russian, Turkey, Turkey. And I was able to travel. So we just came here. But we were here before any of this was accused. Before. We were here before. They knew we were here. So because my wife's citizen, I became a citizen of St. Kitts. And so now I've got a second passport. And that was also a goal, too, because I knew she might try some more crap with my U.S. passport. And I did not want to be without a passport. Right. Um, so, because if you're in a country and they cancel your passport, the U.S. Embassy tells you and they deport you. Basically, you, you have no ID. So, so we're living in St. Kitts. I'm dual citizen now. Um, but I'm still traveling. My, my conference schedule is all over the internet. Um, I'm going to Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Belgium, Netherlands. I'm traveling all over from Microsoft still. So if I'm hiding as the FBI in the prosecutor ledge, why am I flying around the world and publishing my conference schedule on the internet? Can you explain that to me? Right. Well, why don't they go to St. Kitts? I'll get to that. Okay. Okay. So May 2009, in a grand jury, which you probably know, most don't, is done behind a closed door. It's done in secret. My lawyers are never notified. I was never notified. None of us were ever notified. And the only witness is my ex-wife, the prosecutor, and the FBI agent who has been calling my lawyers and showing at my mom's house, indicts me in a federal grand jury, unbeknownst to me, for right. kidnapping. And the thing is the indictment, too. The indictment actually says that I came, the indictment says I came to Titusville and removed him. It doesn't say I withheld him. It doesn't mention this. Uh, the indictment actually says I physically removed him from Titusville on November 6th. That's what the indictment says. Which, of course, is impossible. Right. I don't know about this. Now, they know I'm in St. Kitts. They issued an Interpol red notice for me. Okay? Now, they waited to issue the Interpol red notice. Now, here's, and if you look on the Department of Justice website, there's a thing called luring. They lure people on purpose. And I know other people the FBI is after who they've also lured, and I can get into those if you want as well. So, they could have come to St. Kitts right away and tried to extradite me, whatever. They knew I was here. They didn't. They waited. Now, they knew I was going to be speaking in Belgium in the summer of 2009. And uh, I think the Netherlands as well. I was speaking to a couple of European countries. And we actually went because my, my second son needed some surgery. So, we went to France. And we were in France for two to three months. I forget exactly how long. But we, 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 lived, we went to France for about two months. And during that time, I built it around my conference schedule. So, I was speaking in Belgium on the internet. And they can see immigrate. They can see all flight records as well, and I can prove this to you as well because they they have pulled up my flight records. They have they've stated they knew where I was all these times, so they knew I was in France, they knew I was in Belgium, they knew I was in Saint Kitts before I left. They knew I came back to Saint Kitts, but see, they knew I was going to Bulgaria in September, ahead of time, because it was published on the internet. Right. So they could have arrested me in France. They could have arrested me in Belgium. They could arrest me in St. Kitts, but they didn't want to do St. Kitts because that's home turf for me. Because here they would put me on house arrest at most or just take my passport and tell me not to leave and go through the court hearings. And I'd be on home turf. They didn't want me on home turf. They didn't want me in a nice French prison. They didn't want me in a nice Belgian prison. They wanted me in a Bulgarian prison so I'd give myself up. 
Like Sam Bankman Freed, you know, when he got arrested in the Bahamas, he's like, I'm going to fight this, fight the machine. Then he's like, three days, he's like, take me, take me, take me. Yeah. And they did this to me intentionally. They waited to put me in Interpol until I flew to, Bul flew to Bulgaria. So they indicted me in May. And I was in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, several countries, any of which I could have grabbed me, including my home country. No, they waited until I flew to Bulgaria to put me in Interpol. And I had a one-month-old daughter. I had a daughter born in September. And I flew to Bulgaria in October. So I flew to Bulgaria. They arrested me. I spent three months in and out of five different Bulgarian prisons. They tried to extradite me. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I thought you were only there for like a, a few weeks. No. Yeah. Oh, the Bulgarian story. Oh, my gosh. When I get into this. So I'm going to skip the Bulgarian story a little bit, then I'll come back to it because it's very long on its own. So they tried to extradite me. Um, initially, I did decide to give myself up, not because of the Bulgarian prison, but because I'm like, this is all a mistake. This is all, you know, even for her, I'm like, there's no way. And I'm just like, I'll go back. I'll fight it out in court. I'll clear it up. It'll take a month or so. I'll go home to St. Kitts, right? Because I got three kids now. One of them's a month old. Before I could even give myself up, I saw the press coverage the FBI was doing on me, full court press. Associated Press, Reuters. It was in every, it was headlines in almost every country in the world. In Pennsylvania, I was the headline, not the front page, the headlines multiple times and the front page as well. It came in the radio. My mom found out because my 14 year old, I had a, a brother who was a year, I have a brother that's a year older than my son. And he was on his way out to school and heard it in the radio. It was everywhere. And it was not, it was not father who held child overseas. It was international kidnapper held in Bulgaria from Pennsylvania. A lot of the cases, a lot of the news articles didn't even mention it was my son. I'm surprised that he'd go with human trafficking. Oh, they, they tried that too. They, oh, I was a drug dealer. I was a spy. You would not believe the things they called me. But the point is, I saw what the FBI was doing to me in the press, and I was like, uh-uh, not giving myself up anymore. So I fought the extradition. I won because the Bulgarian courts... Basically, there's several reasons. One is time travel doesn't exist. The accusations weren't found to be credible. And even if the accusations were found to be credible, once they dug into the details, the accusations, once they had to unseal the indict the, the details, the details didn't even match the indictment. The indictment said I removed him. But once they looked at the details, the details said, the thing is, during an extradition, they're not allowed to look at evidence. They're not allowed. But they are allowed to look at the credibility of the claim. And so the U.S. was trying to claim it was kidnapping, and Bulgaria's like, no, this, if this happened, if this even happened, which we don't believe it did, it's custodial interference, which is not a crime in Bulgaria. It's a civil offense. It's not criminal. And it's not punishable by the required, I can't remember if it's one or two years by the treaty. And so Bulgaria on the face just says it doesn't qualify. But the judges also said that they didn't find the claims to be credible, among other things. So my extradition was turned down, and then the U.S. appealed it. And the U.S. lost an appeal as well. When they lost the appeal, the U.S. tried to add more charges, which didn't stick. They revoked my U.S. passport so that they asked Bulgaria to deport me, but I didn't enter Bulgaria on my U.S. passport because my U.S. passport was 100 pages. It was a special one. But do you renew the U.S. passport? It costs more money. I have to fly to Barbados at least once. I think back then you had to fly twice, once to apply, once to pick it up. Now they'll FedEx it to you. Um and it's more expensive. Where did my Caribbean passport in St. Kitts? I walk downtown and I renew it and it takes like two days, right? 
So I was traveling with my Caribbean passport simply because it's easier to renew because with all my travel, I would fill it up on a regular basis, right? So, but Bulgaria didn't deport me because I was there legally. I didn't enter my U.S. passport. And even if I did, I could have just like gone to the transit area and then come back on my Caribbean passport anyways. So the U.S. now told Bulgaria I was uh, a drug dealer. I mean, all kinds of accusations. I'll come back to the Bulgaria thing. So while I'm in Bulgarian prison, by the way, a member of the U.S. Embassy from Barbados flies to St. Kitts and tries to kidnap my 13-year-old son. And yes, I have court records of this too. A regional security officer. See, the FBI won't do it on their own. They get other people to do it. Now, these regional security officers, sometimes they're U.S. citizens, sometimes they aren't. Right. When they, when they want to do their dirty work, they send a non-U.S. citizen. So he flew here to St. Kitts to try and abduct my son, got caught, and was expelled by the St. Kitts attorney general. He was told, get out of the country in 24 hours, or we will diplomatically expel you. So he left. Then, a week or two later, my ex-wife, whose passport has been revoked. So Tennessee revoked my ex's passport and driver's license for non-payment of child support, by the way. So her passport, she did not have a passport. She, she never traveled. So basically they put a passport block on her. She was not allowed to apply for a passport and they revoked her driver's license. Well, while I'm still in Bulgarian prison, she shows up in St. Kitts at my son's school. So the FBI overrode her passport block and they paid for her flight and her hotel to come to St. Kitts after they failed to kidnap him. She shows up at his school and the school's like, who are you? And he's like, that's my mom, but I'm, I don't trust her. <laughs> so she tries to walk off with him from the school and the school's like, uh, no. So they call the police and, um, my, my wife goes and gets my son, takes him home. Then she files in court here to, uh, take him home and the courts deny her. In fact, not only did the courts deny her because they sided with the Tennessee order and they saw all their stuff going and she's like, but the father's in Bulgarian prison, so I can take him. And the courts are like, that's not how it works. Right. And she's like, he's pending extradition. And even the Department of Justice got involved. They told the St. Kitts governments in diplomatic communications that I was going to be extradited. That it was, it was a done deal. Right. And so basically the courts turned her down. The judge here even took my son aside. And I'm in Bulgarian prison, so I have no influence over my son at this point. I can't communicate right. with him, nothing. And the judge even asked my son, the judge is like, listen, according to the law, you're supposed to stay here, but do you want to go with your mom? And he's like, no, I'm staying here waiting for my dad to come home. Right. So she's on an open ticket. She's not remarried. Uh, she doesn't work. She has nothing to get back to except her cats. Okay. So my point is here, she claims she hasn't had any contact with her son because she disappeared, um, but she's here. So she hasn't physically seen her son since 2006. So it's been, it's been about three years, right? Since she's physically seen him. But that's by her doing. So you would think she's got an open. Yeah. She's in St. Kitts? Yeah. The FBI paid for her to come here. The FBI paid for her flight and her hotel and gave her a passport back. Okay, but, I, right, I like, first of all, that's absurd. But the, Oh, we haven't even gone to the absurd they yet. They just don't even, they, that's just something they don't really do. But Oh, yeah, they do. There's really... a special fund for it. The FBI will deny it, but there's a special fund they have that the FBI funds through the Department of Justice with Nick Mick to help parents get back ch children overseas. They're not supposed to use it in this case, but they did for her. And they overrode her passport. Well, how if she doesn't have a job, how is she staying there? They paid for everything. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she got a Caribbean vacation. We are a top tourist destination. If you don't believe, look it up. 
We no, have a million visitors a year. We are one of the top tourist destinations for Americans. Yeah, it's very nice. If I were to go out the window right now, there's probably four cruise ships docked out the window. Yeah. So, so she shows up. I'm in Bulgarian prison. The courts turned her down here. And so she's only here like four or five days. Okay, I have to look it up. But it was it was not more than a week. Now, after the courts turned her down, though, when she did show up, the courts did give her visitation here, though. They said, as long as you're on the island, you surrender. So they had to surrender her passport. The Sankets authorities took her American passport. They took my son's passport, okay, so that she couldn't abduct him. But they told her, they said, as long as you're on the island, and this visitation order persisted till he was 18, she could have come back anytime she wanted to visit him. Anytime. But she's already here. And the courts gave her visitation every other day after school and on weekends and that kind of stuff. But they didn't trust her. So they had a, um, they had somebody from the, the child welfare office here basically follow her around the island, tail her. That's how bad it was. They were, they knew where she was. They were tailing her. They seized her airline tickets and everything. So she's here. So she's here a few days. The courts, the courts here processed it really quickly, but they turned her down. They're like, no, the father has custody. You don't, you have visitation, but you cannot take him. And so the day it was the day or the day after it was one or two days after she lost in the court here. Now she could have stayed here and continued to spend time with her son that is kidnapped. And she doesn't know where he is. And, you know, she hasn't seen him. And oh my God, she could have stayed on a Caribbean Island, enjoyed the beach time with him. And while she was here, when she's visiting, all she did was run around to lawyers with him. The lawyers here, the, oh, the FBI paid for a lawyer for her here too. Yeah. So the FBI paid for a lawyer. And when she didn't like what that lawyer told her, she would she was going to like three or four lawyers around the island because they were all telling her, you already lost in court. She's like, I don't care. I need another lawyer. So all she did was not even spend time with them. She just kept taking the lawyers. So then like two days after the court hearing, like the morning, I think it was two days after the court hearing where she lost, um, she shows up at the apartment. And I'm still in Bulgaria. I'm still in prison in Bulgaria. And she's like, I've decided to go home. Can I see my son one last time? And she'd gotten her passport back from the court and all that kind of stuff because uh -huh. she's, she said she wants to leave. She has an open ticket right. and her hotel paid for. So first of all, why don't you stay and visit with your son for a few days? Right. And she shows up like, can I take him to lunch? I'm leaving. My flight's at like two o'clock. Can I take him to lunch? And my wife's like, no. Oh, I forgot the part about when they tried to kidnap him. Yeah. I told you about that, but I didn't tell you how. So the regional security officer, first of all, my wife notices people following her around and not like in a paranoia, like actually following her and following the kids around to school. So we're having to have security to get the kids to school and stuff now. And then a regional security officer, he goes to one of the police stations here and picks up like a traffic officer. He was a traffic, but he's like, he picks up like the lowest police officer in the country and not even, he doesn't even go to police headquarters. He goes to like a branch outpost of the police that they have in the touristy area. I'm from the American embassy and I have a court order on my phone to seize this child. He doesn't even have a, he doesn't even have official documentation. He doesn't go to the attorney general, doesn't go to the courts. He just picks up some police officer who's like three weeks on the job and they show up at our apartment and threat to cut the burglar bars off and take the child out. And my wife's having none of this. She calls them, this is a small island, it's 35,000 people. Everybody knows everybody here. So my wife calls the chief of police right away and a lawyer and gets the chief of police on the phone to this uh, local St. Kitts officer, and the chief of police tells him to bugger off. He's like, you don't have a court order. That's from St. Kitts. You have a court order from the United States, which we don't even know if it's valid, and it's on his phone. Right. And so he tells the police officer, you better bugger off before you're in trouble. So he buggers off. But the regional security officer stays behind and threatens my wife some more before he gets to, before he gets expelled off the island. 
but she just disappears. So I'm still in Bulgaria. I'm still having to go through all the Bulgarian thing, which we need to go back and talk about more. So I finally return home with the help of the Bulgarian government because the FBI is trying to catch me on the way home too because there's no direct flights from Bulgaria to St. Kitts and I can't fly through the UK because the UK has a special extradition treaty, which if you're a US citizen, you're gone. They don't even yeah. need evidence. Might as well be a state. Yeah, so I can't fly the UK. That's the most direct route. So I have to fly from the UK to France, to France, to St. Martin, to here. And I almost got caught in St. Martin, but I had help. Not only was the St. Kitts government helping me at this point, the Bulgarian government was helping me at this point because the U.S. government had lied so many times to the Bulgarian government that they were like, we got to help this dude get out. And the help of a former FBI agent who I found on Facebook, because I was posting on Facebook about what was going on when I got, because I, I was in and out, but I was not always in prison. And especially towards the end, I wasn't in prison. I was, st I was sleeping in a friend's kitchen. They let me go to help all my documents and stuff. And so I was on Facebook, like, this is what's going on. And this dude that I had on Facebook that I didn't really know, he's like, yo, I'm a former retired FBI agent. And what they're doing to you is shit. He says, most of the people in the FBI are pretty decent, but we get a bunch of a-holes like the one you're dealing with. And I know that type and I want to help you. So he helped me with some subterfuge and I flew home on a different name, which is interesting, which you probably couldn't get away with today. And even in 2009, it was a bit iffy. Um, but what I did was I took my middle name and so my middle name is Zachary. And so instead of flying as Chad, I flew as Zach, which in the U S you can't, I've heard, I've heard people in the U S like if you're James, you can't even get away with putting Jim on your ticket, but overseas you can still get away with some nicknames if it's, if it's right. legitimately tied to your passport. And we also did some other things that I, I'm not going to talk about right now, but we took several things and I basically flew as Zach and I got home. And because of that, the reason we did that was. Because we knew that the U.S. Embassy, they had already put a travel flag on me, but they just flagged, they flagged the names, you know, they didn't flag Zach. Right. The specific so, name, and since, it's an, since it, it automatically just looks for exactly that name, it's altered slightly. It's yeah, and we, we took some other things. We took some other steps as well, but I, I ended up getting home. I almost got caught in St. Martin, but we knew it might happen. So we flew a friend of mine from St. Kitts to St. Martin. He was waiting for me in the transit area and resolved the issue. And then we both flew back together to St. Kitts and I arrived like, it's like 10 o'clock at night or something, New Year's Eve. So I got back like a few hours before 2010 and I've been stuck here ever since. The problem is in 2010, I started getting really ill. And today is one of the best days I've had in, in over a year. One of the four best days. A lot of days, there's about nine months I could barely talk. I have very dire health situation. Our hospital here is extremely basic. We only have 35,000 people. They do not have the surgical equipment I need here. We flew a surgeon in 2015 who saved my life, but he can't do it again. The FBI and the prosecutor both know that I'm slowly dying here in horrific pain. It won't allow me to get medical care. And even if I offer to give myself up, he won't try and extradite me again because he said he's wasted so many millions of dollars, he won't try again. And he'll wait for me to travel to be arrested again. So he's slowly killing me here. The last court hearing was September 2022. He said, the only way for me to resolve this is, A, I can travel and get arrested again, and every country be repeated Bulgaria. They'll deny my extradition, but only after months to years in a prison. Oh, they tried to extradite me from St. Kitts as well. I forgot that. They tried to extradite me from St. Kitts, and that failed as well. So, um, but basically, I'm stuck here, and he says, the only other alternative, and this he said this in court, I have the transcripts, September 2022. They have blocked all our filings. Oh, Pennsylvania dismissed the case in 2021, by the way. So the Pennsylvania case has been dismissed. The federal case is based on the Pennsylvania case. Still holding on to it. Yeah. 
So the only the only case that's the only order that still um is still valid is the one that says you have full custody from Tennessee. Well, he's he's 26 now, so you're starting with <laughs> Well, I know, but either and way, my son has done TV interviews on ABC and Fox affiliates in Pennsylvania saying I'm not missing, I never was, my mom always knew where I was, please stop this, and the FBI still doesn't care. He's done TV interviews, and they're on my news playlist. He's 26 years old. And she sent him letters the entire time, too. I made a TikTok yesterday showing all the letters that she and her mother sent him over the years. Now, the thing is, she sent him a letter in 2011, and then um, her mother, the maternal grandmother, I spoke with her at least every other month, and so did my son. Okay? Now, she sent a letter in 2011, and then she didn't send so much. She didn't call. She didn't come back to visit. She didn't even send a letter for over 10 years. When Pennsylvania dismissed the case in 2021, for the first time in over 10 years, she sent my son a letter. Now, what kind of mother knows where your son is the entire time, never writes, never calls, never visits, and maintains he's missing? Now, Nick Mick listed him as missing until he was 26. They removed him in July of last year. Do you know why? And the thing is, even in April 2008, when that letter, when that poster first went up, my lawyers contacted Nick Mick immediately and explained the situation. They're like, well, we don't care. We're siding with the mother. And we had people calling Nick Mick, reporting sightings of him, saying he's in the Caribbean. Nick Mick never did anything. They never even updated the poster. It never even said St. Kitts. His poster never once mentioned St. Kitts. So why does so, it take down? Okay. Why did it take down? Because I got on TikTok and I made a viral TikTok, which got a million views in a period of a few days. And I tagged the Nick Mick account on TikTok. And within 24 hours, they removed his poster and blocked me on TikTok. And the thing is, they had previously told my lawyers, as well as other people who had contacted Nick Mick, they said, we cannot take the poster down without a court order. Yeah, this fucking, they mean they won't without a court order. Well, they did when I did a viral TikTok, and they blocked uh, me on, on TikTok. They, they blocked me. They were saying they weren't going to do it without a court order, but they could. They, they said they couldn't. No. I don't. I have to. I have to check the wording. You may be right, but I'm pretty sure they said they couldn't, or maybe maybe they did say they wouldn't. But either way, they were risking. Saying, I'm just saying, like they could the whole time. They just chose yes. not to. They were just being pricks. You know. And I've been on Interpol red notice. I've been through multiple extraditions. I'm slowly dying here. I know I look like I'm good today, but even I took beds before I talked to you. Um, no, I, I had a doctor come to the house yesterday because I can't even get to the doctor's office. So the doctor had to come here. The hospital cannot operate on me here. And they continue to cover us. Oh, and the FBI continues to intimidate media. I didn't have confirmation this until recently because back in 20, 2009, 2010, I was working with journalists and one of them did say, I, I was going to do your story, but the FBI called me and told me to bugger off. I'm not going to do it. And so I knew, oh yeah, it gets better. Oh, in 2017. 2017, we catfished them. So we had somebody email the FBI to tell him I'm in St. Kitts, which we've done many times. And he and the dude sent me back copies of the emails. And the special agent who did all this crap, his name is Kirk Brace. He's now retired. He retired around 2018, 2019. He sent back an email and said that they're still very interested in catching me, but that the St. Kitts authorities are being uncooperative. By uncooperative, he means the courts turned down my extradition and her and them and, you know. So... Yeah. We thought when he retired in 2018 or 2019, he might stop doing this. But no, because I've been on TikTok. I have 8.9 million views last week. 
I have had a number of journalists ghost me, not tell me they won't do the story. Like I've done interviews with them. They're like, we're going to look into it. And they're like, we're going to call the FBI to get their side of the story. I'm like, listen, you call anybody you want. You call my ex-wife, you call the FBI, you call the judge. I don't care. I'm an open book. You call anybody you want. They call the FBI, then they ghost me. They won't even answer my messages after that. Not even like, not even professional ethics you would think would be like, we called the FBI, we decided not to do your story. No, in fact, I had a CNN producer come into my live for over an hour on TikTok and I was working with him. He's now ghosted me in the last few weeks. But last week, I got confirmation from two journalists who talked, one of them talked to the retired FBI agent. He called him at home and got him. And the FBI agent clearly told him, do not cover this case. Do not mess in the FBI's affairs. It will not go good for you. And he told a second journalist, so the FBI is still intimidating journalists to not cover my story. And that's why I have the biggest Netflix documentary, the biggest story that should be everywhere. And I can't get it covered because the FBI keeps calling people up. Now, one of the journalists, to his credit, he's an independent, so far has said he's not scared, but we'll see. And so they are still intimidating people. Why do you think that is? Like, well, what, what, because what, what, here's, here's exactly why. I can tell you why. So he also called the prosecutor and the prosecutor, my mom's been calling the prosecutor for a long time, leaving voicemails. The prosecutor won't even call my mom back. Okay. So this one journalist called the prosecutor, this was Saturday and got him in his home too. And the prosecutor told him, I don't have anything to say to you. If you have any issues, you can contact my lawyer. This is a federal prosecutor who is a government lawyer for the FBI has now referred a journalist to his lawyer. Okay. Now as to why, here's why. And he's also refused me a trial. We made an offer to turn myself in on three conditions. One, provide me an air ambulance because I needed an air ambulance to go anywhere. And my, he has my medical report. My medical report makes it very clear I need an air ambulance. Two, guarantee me the medical care in the United States. Okay. And three, agree to abide by the Speedy Trials Act and not file for any extensions, which is 70 days. Right. Okay. Now, if this, this case has been going on for 17 years, you would think he has all his ducks in a row. There should be no reason for him to file an extension and be like, I need to investigate this. In court, before a judge, we finally forced a petition, and he told the judge, no, I will not agree not to file any extensions. So, and on top of that, oh, I forgot, to, I got sidetracked. He said, the only way for me to turn myself in is either fly somewhere and get arrested and, and agree to uh, extradition because he will not try and extradite me from St. Kitts another time. He will not try because it's already been turned down. Or I can turn myself into the U.S. Embassy in St. Kitts. The problem, there is no U.S. Embassy in St. Kitts. And the prosecutor knew that ahead of time. And even though my lawyer told him in front of a judge, there is no U.S. Embassy in St. Kitts, he's like, well, it's not my problem then. Now, why is he doing all this? Here's why. Because he's the same prosecutor that made this mess with the FBI agent. So if you were to bring me to trial, would you really want to be the prosecutor? Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen of the jury and your respected judge. I just want to let you know that I said this child was born in Pennsylvania, but oops, he's actually born in Tennessee. Who knew? And um, Mr. Howard was not in the United States in November, so he couldn't have taken him. Oops, who knew? And oh, by the way, on the FBI website where it says he's a former Titusville man, he's never lived in Titusville. He's never even spent a night there. That's where his ex-wife ran and kidnapped and hid the child with. So, oops. This prosecutor has been a federal prosecutor for 20 years. He was a state prosecutor prior to that. He's only done 12 trials in his 20-year career, and you really think that's the case he's going to bring to trial? Would you want to be that prosecutor? Now, he could no. dismiss at any time, and he has admitted that he could dismiss this case, but he explicitly refuses. 
because I can sue the Department of Justice and he can be charged with prosecutorial misconduct. Yeah, he's better off just having you stay there and dying. That's his plan. Right. And I haven't even told you everything yet. So I could tell you more, but it gets wilder beyond this. What 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 happened in when you were arrested in Bulgaria? Okay. So I was in Bulgaria. I was speaking at a conference. I was one of the opening speakers, not the keynote. I'm often the keynote speaker as well as other, but I was one of the first sessions. We were at the conference center, which is a combination of a Holiday Inn, which is next to the movie theater, and we were using the movie theater to present. Um, there were a lot of conference attendees, probably over a thousand easily. I was international conference speaker. I was one of the headliners, well-known. Um, I arrived in Bulgaria and um, nothing really happened. I arrived, I have to look again. I think it was a Sunday. Basically, the first day I arrived, nothing really happened. And then we went out to dinner and nothing really was up. And one of the speakers, he said, you know, I saw when I was checking in, he says, I saw a document on the counter there that had your name on it. And I didn't think anything of it because I just thought it was like a check-in sheet. I thought there was a check-in sheet and I just happened to be on top because Bulgaria is lots of paperwork. Eastern Europe is all paperwork. And I didn't think anything of it. Nothing at all. Went out to a speaker dinner, came back around 2, 2.30 in the morning. I had a session at like 9 o'clock or something. So I got a few hours sleep. I had, I am always retuning my sessions, even if I've given a million times. So I woke up around 6, 6.30, made some tea, put on the TV, and was just doing some final revisions to my session. And... um Around seven o'clock, there's a knock on the door. And I thought I am, I knew a lot of the other conference speakers because a lot of us did the same circuit. And one of my best friends at the time I had brought into the conference circuit. So I basically brought him in. He was very talented. I mean, he did everything on his own. I'm not saying that his success is my, my doing. I'm just saying that I did assist him. And one thing I did was get him into the conference circuit. Right. Right. Somebody I worked with, somebody I still respect to this day. Um, and we'd hung out the night before and we always hung out. And so I thought he was coming to the door and be like, yo, let's go to breakfast. And uh, so I appeared through the peephole. It wasn't him. It was five armed uh, Interpol agents with guns, all dressed in black. So I left the chain. I opened the door just a little bit, four men and a woman. And they flashed badges and only the woman spoke English. And she said, uh, we're here from Interpol. We're Bulgarian police, but we're attached to Interpol. And um, do you know why we're here? And I was like, no. But I kind of suspected, oh, because there were some other things that happened before this. I, oh, gosh, I forgot. Okay, so I kind of suspected, but I didn't think they were there to arrest me. And they didn't show their guns at that time. Um, because prior to this, the U.S. Embassy in Cyprus, although they knew we were in St. Kitts, um, our house in Cyprus now had the people that lived next to our neighbors in Cyprus, they lived in a little tiny house and they were actually um, pastors of a church. They were husband and wife. They were pastors of a church. And when we left, they moved into our house because it was bigger and good price. So they knew us. We were good friends with them. Sometimes we would have, you know, breakfast or whatever with them. And they were just, they were right next door. The houses were right next to each other. So we saw them every day. They were very friendly people. We knew them. The U.S. Embassy sent two people down from the embassy in Nicosia. It's about an hour and a half drive. They didn't even call them. They showed up at the house pretending to look for us, although they knew we were here. So they're basically harassing the people that were in our house now. And they weren't having any of it because they were, you know, they were the pastors of a church, but they harassed them. And then also the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and I have a court record of this, by the way, they put it in a court record, 
So the U.S. Embassy in Moscow sent the KGB slash FSB. Now, the KGB, I know they're technically called the FSB, and the Eastern Europeans are like, KGB doesn't exist anymore, you're full of it. Okay, listen, they got renamed to the FSB. It's the same stupid, it's the same people, right? Right. Okay, and most Westerners, even usually CNN still calls them the KGB. So I call them the KGB, but yes, I know KGB FSB. So if I say KGB FSB, that's what I'm talking about. So... I'd already had some encounters with the KGB FSB prior to this, and I'll explain them if you want in a bit. But they sent the KGB looking for me because at one point we lived in Russia. Now they knew we were not in Russia. So what they did is they sent them to my wife's parents' house looking for me. Right. It is more and more so, pressure. Yeah, they're putting all this pressure. Meanwhile, they, they know we're in St. Kitts the whole time. So basically, by this time, and I'd already corresponded with the embassy in Cyprus because I'd emailed them because they said, well, he's not here. So I'd already corresponded them. I had talked to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. I had talked to the Rush. I talked to the U.S. Consulate in St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, I'd already been in contact with several embassies over this, and I'd already sent them court documents. I'd already explained the whole thing because they kept saying, "We're just investigating. We're just looking for your son. Where is he?" And I'm like, "Well, he's with me, and I'm here, and here's a court document." And they're like, "Well, okay." I never had any indication that it was anything other than just harassment, right? Because all the U.S. embassies, after I sent them the stuff, they always buggered off. Well, the one. The one invited me to come in for a visit. And I'm like, no. No. I have no reason to come back to the embassy right now. Plus, oh, the U.S. Embassy in Cyprus, we need to come back to this. The U.S. Embassy in Cyprus swatted my house. Yeah. They so let's come back to that in a little bit. Okay. They told the Cyprus police we were drug dealers and they came and swatted our house. And the Cyprus police had to apologize to us after that. And and you're saying the U.S. Embassy did it? Yep. Do you know you know that? Well, I know it for a fact. I'll get into that. Let's come back to that story. Put put it to do because you want to talk about Bulgaria. We'll come back to that. But no, I know is them. I have proof. Right. So okay. We should talk about the KGB and FSB story sometime too. And we should also talk about the TSA incidents. Mm-hmm. So we should also talk about the uh, foreign intelligence agency encounters as well. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting. In uh, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and uh, United Arab Emirates. But let's stick to Bulgaria for now. I told you it gets wild. Right. So, but remember, I have court documents for everything. Right. I can prove everything. So, Bulgaria. So, they show up. And by this time, I had had contact with U.S. embassies in Cyprus, uh, U.S. embassy in Russia, consulate in, in Russia. So, I knew there was harassment. So, I thought, like okay, this is just the U.S. Embassy in Bulgaria. They know I'm in Bulgaria because it's my conference schedule, my travel schedule, my flight schedule. I mean, I knew they knew I was there, right? And I had no idea it was arrest warrant, nothing. So I just thought it was the same thing again. I just thought this time Bulgaria decided, hey, let's do a personal visit on the dude. So I wasn't even scared. And um, they were like, well, we have some questions. And then I said, I don't know what it's about. And they're like, this is about your son. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. And so they're like, let's go to the police station, have a chat. I'm like, I have a session in like an hour and a half, and I'm one of the headliners. It's like, you're going to need to postpone it. And I had a second session in the afternoon. So I messaged the conference organizer, and I basically told him, I said, something's really urgent come up. I'm very sorry about this. I need to cancel my session. I was in the biggest room, and I'm like, I- I'm just, I'm so sorry. I, I can't even explain right now because they didn't give me any time. I said, but I should be back for my afternoon session. That's the still position I'm in. I'm like, listen. We're going to go. We're going to have a chat because I had had things like this happen similar, but not quite. And there's always, let's have a chat. We go away. We investigate. 
okay, you're here. Okay, your son's in St. Kitts and this stuff. And then they go away. Right. And, but then I figured out something was going on because they said, let's go have a chat. So I had answered the door in my underwear because I hadn't even dressed yet. And there were four men and a woman. They're all dressed in black. Um, black and blue jeans. They look like mafia or something, right? Right. And I'd been in places where people pretend to be police, so I'd verified everything. I checked the badges. You know, they 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 were legit, and I'm checking everything. And they're like, "Let's go to the police station." And so I still the door cracked, and she's like, "Um, bring your bring your uh, you bring your U.S. passport, some identity documents, and some pants." <laughs> so, and I've started the I've, on TikTok. I have a whole series. I've made eleven parts so far. Well, I made a bunch before. I made like twenty parts, but I was really sick when I made those. So now that I've the last month, the Cuban government has been helping me with medical. They're not, they can't fix me, but they've, right. they've brought some doctors to me and I've gotten a lot better. The last three months I've gotten a lot better. I still need surgery. I'm still in a lot of pain. Don't get me wrong. I could die six days, six weeks, six months, six years. I don't know, but I'm in massive amounts of pain most times. I, once you see my health playlist, I pass hundreds of kidney stones a month. Hmm. I passed a seven by seven by three millimeter kidney stone on my, by my own, by myself. I piss tissue. I piss blood. I piss pus. It's nasty. I can show you pictures if you want or check my health playlist on TikTok. So anyways, it was unusual that five of them were there, but I just thought, you know, sometimes these countries, they like to impress the Americans, you know, the American, they're like, the Americans want something. <laughs> and I just thought they were putting on a show. So I put on pants. I grabbed my American passport. I grabbed my identity documents. I had, I had a hidden pocket. I had everything there. I just took my hidden pocket, but I took out my Caribbean passport and left it in the hotel. Okay. And so we get into the hallway and they're like, okay, come with us. And um, then I noticed they're all armed. Okay. Except for the woman. Um, I don't think she was armed, but she was there to translate. She told me, she says, these, these other four men don't speak English and I'm here to translate. So now I'm thinking, why are there four men with guns who don't speak English and aren't even dressed as police officers? If they don't speak English, why are they here? Do you really need four of them? Right. Vecna has never even made an allegation of verbal abuse, let alone any sort of violence. I'm a pacifist generally because my dad used to beat my mom up and us, and I don't I don't believe in any of that, right? So the the worst thing my ex could have ever accused me of was maybe yelling or something, and she never even made that accusation. So I'm just wondering why are there four armed men and a woman here to talk to me? All right. So we start walking down the hallway and I notice two of them go in front and two of them going back. So now they're surrounding me. They're worried I'm going to run. And I'm at this point, I'm starting to think, yo, <laughs> something ain't going right. But I'm still just thinking they're putting on a show because I actually hadn't messaged a conference organizer yet. I did it. What happened is when we, when we went down the elevator, um, I ran into my friend who I thought was the one coming to get me for breakfast. And I just told him, um, is he there about somebody else? I forget because I ran to him later for sure. And I just told him, I said, message the conference organizer. And he's like, where are you going? Like, I just, I got to go, I got to go in town. And, you know, he didn't know I was with police because there are five people. They're not even police. He just sees me disappear with five people dressed in black. And it's suspicious. And all the conference attendees are in the hotel, in the lobby. They're making it very conspicuous that they're taking me. Absolutely conspicuous. Everybody sees. So we get into the, um, we get into the parking lot and there's an unmarked black uh, like intelligence style car. So now I know that these aren't normal Bulgarian police. They're actually the Bulgarian intelligence service. 
and they put me in a car. They surround me with one police officer on each side in the back seat. And there's another car. So I found out there's two cars. It was waiting in the parking lot. It's following us. So now they brought like, <laughs> I don't know how many people there are, but there's two cars in the intelligence, Bulgarian intelligence service taking me away to the police station. And I don't inform them that I speak any other languages. Okay. Because I know at this point, if they don't ask me, I'm not telling them anything. I will cooperate. I will be polite. They have been polite. They've been professional. They've not been hostile to me. I mean, they, they've not been rough. Okay. And, but I'm not going to offer them anything extra. So in the car, I'm with Veronica, the one who speaks English. And I'm just asking her some basic questions. And she's like, well, we're here about your son. And um, then she gets on to, uh, oh, actually, I don't think they told me Interpol until we got in the car. I, I can verify. I wrote all this down. I have like 50 pages written down. I'm working memory right now. But I don't think they'd mentioned Interpol until we were in the car and all this police station. Basically, we're here about your son and we're arresting you on an Interpol notice. And I'm like, what? Arrest? Interpol? Because before then, I thought it was just like, just let's go have a chat. Yeah, chit chat. But I see the second car. I figure out these are Bulgarian intelligence. And this was not my first trip to Bulgaria. I'd been to Bulgaria several times. I had co-workers in Bulgaria. I had been on a programming team with Bulgarians. Um, I had stayed at friends' houses in Bulgaria before. Alex had been to Bulgaria before. One time when we lived in Turkey, we took the train to Bulgaria and visited friends for a week or so. So Alex had been to Bulgaria. I mean, they knew that from immigration records. They knew he'd been in Bulgaria. And, but, so, I mean, uh, but I knew Bulgaria. And so, I mean, I knew these were intelligence operatives and I'd been through the Middle East, all through Eastern Europe. I lived in Russia, but now there are, I hear the word arrest and Interpol. That kind of is, you know, changing everything. So we get to the police station and, um, do you want the long version? Or do you want the short version of this? I mean, we're coming up on two hours and 20 minutes. So the semi-short version is, is probably good. I've okay, seen the TikTok where you do the voices. So okay. let, we, we don't need the voices. Just the Well, so, I can shorten it down to basically they, they, I would call it an interrogation. Yeah. And then they brought somebody from the U.S. Embassy. He interrogated me. That was one of the dumbest people I've ever met as far as interrogations go. I mean, he was probably, he's not an idiot as a person goes, but the guy from the U.S. Embassy, I think what happened was they're like, yo, this dude got arrested in a pool, he's going to get extradited. Go harass him. And the dude's like, okay, whatever. And he he came in completely cold. He didn't know crap. And I played with him the whole freaking time. I mean, I, I had him in the palm of my hand and I'm still making fun of him on TikTok. I'm redoing a new series. And um, we found him on LinkedIn. I tried to connect with him on LinkedIn. He's now in South Africa. He has not accepted my uh, connection request, by the way. <laughs> so I have a former I have a former army intelligence officer helping me out now. I mean, I've attracted all kinds of people on TikTok. I have two other people wanted on false charges by the FBI, and they're on Interpol lists on, I'm in touch with now. I've had people who are actually guilty contact me, and I've just told them, I said, listen, you know, just take a plea bargain or something. But I have two other people the FBI's accused of bullcrap too, and Interpol can't get them, and um, I'm in touch with them. And they're not even for custody, they're for other things. But it's just, you know, then the extradition went through, and I could tell you about what they did to me in Bulgaria in prison. I could tell you the FBI visited me in prison. They sent RSOs after me. They sent the FBI after me. They lied to Bulgaria. They tried to, they bribed a police officer in Bulgaria after my extradition was denied the second time. They didn't want me to leave, so they bribed a police officer and convinced them that my Caribbean passport was fake and that St. Kitts was not a country. <laughs> and then they complicated things because St. Kitts and Bulgaria at the time did not have official diplomatic relations, which complicated things a bit. 
even though we had FedEx official documents from St. Kitts that were apostilled. I don't know if you know what an apostille is, but when you when you move foreign documents, you move documents between countries, there's an international convention. It's a treaty, one of the Geneva Conventions. You have to have a special stamp from the federal government that auth that makes it official to move to another country. So my wife is back here in the Caribbean getting apostilles on all the documents and FedExing them to Bulgaria to prove everything I'm saying, prove I'm a citizen, prove I live here, everything. And then this police officer, here's like the Bulgarian Studenko from Cheech and Chong. You ever watch Cheech and Chong movies? No, not in a long time. Okay, but with Cheech and Chong movies, they have a police officer and his name is Officer Studenko and he's this idiot. And the Cheech and Chong are always making funny of him. And I met the Bulgarian Studenko and I think Studenko might even be a Bulgarian name, by the way. So after all this was, they seized my Caribbean passport and they were trying, they opened an investigation into saying it was fake. And I know they bribed this guy because nobody could possibly be this dumb. We went with my lawyer. We're trying to get my passport back so I can leave Bulgaria. Extradition's already been denied twice. And I shit you not, he has my passport in like one of those clear sleeves that you put a three-ring binder you can see. And there's one staple at the top. And you can actually slip my passport in out on either side of the staple by just turning the bag over and dumping it out. Right. And he's like, we're producing all this documentation to prove who I am. We've sent documentation from St. Kitts, the uh, St. Kitts consulate or embassy or whatever. I think it's a consulate in London was involved. And this officer was convinced. He's like, your passport's fake. And we're like, no. He's like, St. Kitts is not a country. It does not exist. <laughs> and then we convinced him all this stuff. He's like, so then we present him with a photograph because he wants photographs and he wants somebody to prove that the passport is me. Now, because I used to travel so much and all my visas, they had to have a photograph. I had a stack of photographs that I already pre-printed. Instead of going every time I need one, I just printed out like 50 photographs. So I've been using the same photograph for like four years. Same photograph of my Caribbean passport, same photograph of my U.S. passport, same photograph and all the visas I have and everything. And he's like, no, I can't be sure this is the same person. It's not only the same person, it's the same photograph. And he's like, we need a photographic expert. So he goes and gets a photographic expert. And the photographic expert is like, these are obviously the same photo. And the, even the police officer was like, well, I'm not convinced. How long have you been a photography expert? And just going on and off. And he's like, we can't get your passport out to look at the photograph of your passport because it's in sealed evidence. And it's in this three ring binder with a staple at the top. He's like, we need somebody to officially unseal it. And we're like, it's a staple. And not only that, but you could shake my passport out. And he's making this big deal about how it's officially sealed. And it's just in like this thing from Office Max with a staple. And I have all this written down, but we finally ended up getting it back because somebody in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, helped me out. We got this phone call. Like, uh, and the thing is, my my time in Bulgaria is only three months and I was about to run out. And so what the Americans are doing is we applied for a residence permit. So I'd be legally in Bulgaria and the Americans wouldn't have any of that. And also when we're in Bulgaria, they seized all my identity documents because they said a passport was fake. They even seized my driver's license. Um, I have another I have another government ID from St. Kitts. My, what, like your social security card in the States doesn't have your photo. Here it does. It has my photo and address and stuff on it. It looks like a driver's license and an official ID. And they seized all of it and they wouldn't give any of it back. And under Bulgarian law, when they seize your documents, if you're in their investigation, they have to issue a temporary ID from Bulgaria. They have to. And this police officer would not issue me a temporary ID. And in Eastern Europe, you can't just walk around the streets. So now I am I'm walking around with any ID. Every time I see a police officer, I'm walking the other way because if they stop me and ask me for ID, I'm going to jail for not having ID because they refused to issue it to me. So we finally got um, we got a call from the uh, it was, it was Minister of Foreign Affairs, the prosecutor, I uh, know, prosecutor, the 
the senior prosecutor's office in Minnesota, I can't remember which one. And she's like, listen, I'm the senior person in this ministry. And I, I've been following your case and I was involved initially. And we've learned that the Americans are lying about it. Your extradition has been denied. They're still trying to block you. They still have a block on you in the passport system. But if you come to Sofia, which is like a two hour drive, because where I was staying, if you come to Sofia on this day, and it was like the day before Christmas day, it was like basically like a holiday where everybody was pissed. Everybody was gone. And it wasn't even an official government office. She's like, go to this university and go to the 12th floor and go to this back office. And we went to this back office. Like we couldn't even get it. It was like a window. It was like a hallway. And there's just like a window. It looked like a bank window. And she says, I will transfer your passport to this university, this back office in the university where the inter, I think it was where the, inter, like the law students worked or something, but it's someplace my passport never should have been. But she's like, listen, I will get your passport there. You show up on this day, you take it. I have removed the passport block, but I don't know how long I can keep it to leave immediately. We went and got my passport and then we did the thing that I told you about, booked a last minute ticket and flew out. So I had help even from the Bulgarian officials because they were like, you know. Something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know if you want to go into all the other stories about, you know, my past with the TSA and the foreign intelligence services, because the thing is, it gets wilder from here. Now, at minimum, the only thing that I can prove is we think the best case scenario is the problem is it's not just one person. If this was just one person, you might be able to just say this is what happened. You might be able to say the prosecutor is doing this, but the prosecutor and the FBI and the judge were all in on this. There are three people at minimum involved in this. Plus there's Mary Beth Buchanan who likes to trump up cases. So it could be as simple as Mary Beth Buchanan that, you know, she went to this FBI agent who was telling her the whole time. And then he went to Mary Beth Buchanan and Mary Beth Buchanan's like, yeah, I screwed Tommy Chong. Let's screw this dude too. Why not? Right. It could be as simple as that. And now it's a cover up. But if you look at the history of this case, how hard they've tried to get me, how hard they've tried to cover it up, how much they've blatantly lied. That seems like an incredible coincidence for that number of things to happen for a case like this. Somebody at some point should have been like, what the shit? And dropped this. And they refuse to this day. So at minimum, that's all I can prove. Now, if we want to go one step beyond that, the special agent whose name is Kirk Brace. Now, I can't find it because he seems to have issued a scrub order. They can ask for a scrub order where they basically take most of the public information down around agents and stuff, right? Right. Now I have pictures of him because his wife started posting pictures of him in a Santa hat on Christmas and stuff. And I know where he is because he's in people now. But I did find an address record that he used to live in Maryland that's still on the internet. And back in 2009, before I was saving all this stuff, I found, and this is coming off memory, but if memory serves me correctly, he was either the part or I believe the head of the Maryland Counterterrorism Task Force. Now we're filing FOIA requests to find this out, but they keep blocking it. We filed a FOIA request on me last year and the FBI blocked the FOIA request because they said they don't have to comply with it because I'm a fugitive. They have also blocked, um, they've blocked all kinds of requests. We have people contacting them. The FBI will not talk about me. They just say they can't comment. And so, no, normally they will at least provide some comment. And even the journalists who have done this are like, why are they doing this? They don't, this is so strange. But we think what happened to us because he was in Maryland and I believe he was the head. Now I can't prove it. I don't know if he was the head or just a member, but from what I searched before, he was involved in the counterterrorism task force. Now, how does someone go from being either on or the head of the counterterrorism task force for an entire state to being transferred to a branch office in Pennsylvania? Not even like FBI Pittsburgh, not like, Hey, let's go to Pittsburgh. It's a cool city. How did he end up in Erie? Where they don't, where the FBI doesn't even have a building. They don't even really have an office. It's like two offices with two people in it. How did he end up at that posting? Now, my theory 
And again, I can't prove this. My theory is he did something. He got demoted. Right. And then he's like, well, I need to build my career up. What's the easiest way? Oh, let's frame this guy and I can build my career up once I catch this international kidnapper because that's how they portrayed me in the press. I have friends and family back in Pennsylvania or you know, people I went to school with that are maybe not friends that think I captured and killed a kid because that's how it was framed. And if you see me shaking, it's because of the medical condition. As I'm telling you, this is why it's hard for me to type. I right. Work because, and I'm in, I'm actually not in very much pain today. But um, so we think at minimum, that's what it is. But even then, it's kind of hard to believe they go to this extent. And I had some things that happened to me as far back as 2002 that we could go into if you want. But they're even wilder than all of this stuff. And I don't know if they're connected. Although I have a lot of indications lately that are indicating they might be connected. But if we wade into this territory, everything I've told you to date, I have court records, news articles. I can provide everything to you. If we wade into this new territory, I'm going to tell you it's going to start. to It gets even wilder. And I have some documentation to support this, but not everything. And I don't know if they're connected or not, but I have a lot of indications, especially recently. We've found some more documentation that potentially links all of this to prior things. But it gets wilder. And I'm even a little bit hesitant to go into that because I start sounding like a crazy person when I can already prove everything I've already said. Well, okay, so your son is 26. He'll be 27 soon. He's, it, he still does, he talks to you, your ex-wife, his mom? No, 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 he has nothing to do with her. In fact, um, about four years ago, he communicated through her lawyer. He, um, he asked, he contacted her lawyer and he basically said, he says, listen, I don't know how to reach her. Because she keeps moving. We don't have any contact, but you do. And he's like, yeah, I do. And he's like, can I have the contact? And the lawyer's like, nope, can't give it to you. So I was like, well, I'll pass a message to her. Can you do that? He's like, yeah. So he basically told her lawyer that, uh, listen, I don't know if I want to have an adult. I'm, he says, you know, I'm in my 20s now. I'm an adult. I don't know if I want to have an adult relationship with you or not. But if you want to have even a chance, you need to drop this. And then, and then it's a maybe. Right. And... So the lawyer passed the message and we get a call back. I don't remember the same day. It was pretty quick. I think it may have been the same day or a few hours or the next day or something. And the lawyer basically said, he says, I'm not willing to repeat what your mother said. Um, but basically from what he implied, it was basically she told my son, our son, to go to hell. And this is the same mother who for over 10 years didn't send him so much as a letter. And in 2021, in 2021, we finally forced a petition before the Pennsylvania court because the Pennsylvania court kept dismissing our petitions. They would say, I'm a fugitive. They don't have to accept any petitions whatsoever from me, no matter what. doesn't matter what I filed. They will never even look at them. And we found an obscure rule and we forced an order before the court. And in 2021, the court dismissed that temporary order, that 15-year temporary order they dismissed. But they won't dismiss the bench warrant. Now, there's never been a warrant for kidnapping until the feds took it up. And they based it on a bench warrant. They based the kidnapping on a bench warrant. Pennsylvania never had a kidnapping charge against me. Never. Pennsylvania never even had a charge against me for custodial interference. Never. The feds trumped all this crap up. So in 2021, when we went before the court, because my lawyers, we found her in Google again. My lawyers drove to her house and showed up at her door. And she's like, this is still going on. I didn't know. I mean, she knew. And when the press, because my son did interviews on TV, the, um, the ABC reporter showed up at her door and she's like, what? I have nothing to say. So reporters show up at her door and she's like, I have nothing to say. She has the opportunity. If a reporter shows up at your door and your child's been kidnapped, and if all this is true, wouldn't a mother take that opportunity to speak out? 
Right. But what I want to get to is she sent a letter to the judge, a handwritten letter, by the way, to the judge in Pennsylvania. And she's like, well, first of all, she once told my son that work should be fun. And if work isn't fun, then don't work. So she's on welfare. I know that. Or maybe she's a part-time job, but she's always played this game of she can't work. She faked an injury one time. And even my son told me it was fake to get out of work. Um, so she'd have to work. And she tried to get a disability and she couldn't. So she's on welfare. But she sent a letter to the judge and I'll send you all this. And she told the judge that she doesn't have a computer because she's too poor and the public library doesn't let her stay in the library long enough to use her computer. So she has to, she apologizes that she has to write him a handwritten letter and that she wonders if she has to come to the court because now she lives two counties away and it's too expensive for her. She doesn't have a, she doesn't have a car and she can't make it to the court easily. And that um, she wonders if the judge could call her because she can't afford a long distance call, even though who makes a long distance call anymore? Doesn't every calling plan in the United States pretty much uncover the 50 states? Yeah. She's, she's telling the judge she can't afford cell phone minutes to call two counties away now. And that she feels she's being harassed by me by even filing in court to get this dismissed because her financial situation is so bad that even paying for copies and postage is an undue financial burden on her. And then she asked the judge to apply additional sanctions to me and asked for reparations. Is it mental illness? Oh, yeah. Oh, her family has mental illness. You want me to get into that? No. So her family. Now, first of all, I want to be clear that I am not dissing her family because when we first got married for the first two years or so, we lived in her parents' house and I lived with her siblings. So I lived with, um, it was one, two, three, four brothers and her sister and her and her stepdad and her mother. We all lived in the same house. Okay, before and after we got married. And I got along with all of them. All of them. And a lot of them didn't even get along with each other. And she despised most of her siblings. There was her youngest brother she got along with, and one of her other brothers she got along with. And her other her two other brothers she did not like. One she absolutely despises, the other one she didn't like a whole lot. And her sister she got along with. She hated her stepdad, but got along with her mom. So it was an interesting household to live in. And I think it's because of my autism, again, which I didn't know at the time. I'm what they call level one or what most people would know is a high-functioning Asperger's. Okay, that's right. not an official term anymore, but that's what the public term might be for me, high-functioning high Asperger's. Now, her sister is, um, I don't know if she's officially schizophrenic, but she has mental illness. She has a lot. She used to talk to the birds and she heard voices even when I lived with her. So I always knew her as a schizophrenic. And I got along with her sister. Her sister would sit in a rocking chair and just rock all day and talk to the walls and talk to the birds and talk to the ceiling. But I got along with her sister. I was one of the few people that actually kind of got along with her. And But I had grown up around some other people. Um, so, I mean, I, I had worked in some charities in my youth where I dealt with mentally ill people and my mom was handicapped because she was blind. So, I mean, a little experience. So I just, I knew how to deal with her and she wasn't like dangerous or anything. But now she lives, um, she lives in an assisted facility where, you know, she... There's mental people there and she can come and go, but she needs help cooking and living and that sort of stuff. So she's committed. Right. One of her other brothers was in prison, but is now out. One of her other brothers is in prison for killing somebody. And one of the brothers is not in prison. It's probably the only one I would have expected would have ever should have been in prison and isn't, but I have some concerns about. And then her other brother is pretty normal. So, but even the one, even the one that's in prison, I got along with that one. Um, I got, even he was, he was on drugs at the time. And I got along with every one of them. And even if I were free today, I would go visit him in the Erie County prison or whichever. I think, I don't know if he's federal or not. I would go visit him, even though I don't want to get into what he did. 
he was on drugs. He ended up killing somebody. It was kind of an accident. He was found guilty. He was guilty. But I got along with the rest of our family. There's only one brother that I didn't trust. Um, and even after we were divorced, I had continued contact with some of her brothers and her mother. I talked to her mother at least every other month until her mother passed away. Her mother passed away, uh, I don't know, I have to look 2016, 2017-ish, but I talked to her mother all the way up until then, and so did Alex, every other month, at least minimum, if not more. And all the time they're saying they don't know where he is, and I'm in touch with her mother and one of her brothers. So yeah, there was, what I, my point was, I'm not trying to diss her family, but there is a history of mental illness in that family. And yeah, she definitely has some mental issues is what I would like to come across as. But I don't blame her. I don't blame her at all. I blame the system which is doing it. I mean, there, right. nobody should have taken her case. I blame Kirk Brace, the FBI agent. I blame Judge White. And I blame Christian Trable, the prosecutor. And I blame Mary Beth Buchanan. But the ones that are holding this case are the FBI agent Kirk Brace and the prosecutor Christian Trable. Those are the two that are just holding on to this tooth and nail. And we've met because Christian Trable's boss has changed. It was... Um, uh, Mary Beth Buchanan got promoted. She left in around 2010. And then I don't know who it was. Then it was Steve Kaufman. And then it was Cindy Chung. And now Cindy Chung is a judge. And I forget who the new person is. We've talked to both Cindy Chung and Stephen Kaufman. And they've both refused to dismiss the charges because they say, come to court, but they won't let me come to court. I can tell you, as an aside, there's an, I mean, I can give you many examples you want, but there was a guy from St. Kitts and he's now passed away. I never met him, but I was friends with his son. His son's now left the island, but I was friends with this decent friend of the son. I know his, I know this gentleman's brother. I know his sister-in-law and I know his nephew. And this is all documented as well. He was a dual citizen. He was a Canadian citizen and a St. Kitts citizen. He was a Canadian doctor and you can look all this up. And the U.S. wanted him for supplying steroids to a U.S. Olympic uh, runner. And... They said he did it in Buffalo. He was a Canadian doctor. So they said all this stuff and they added all these kind of charges and stuff and they made a big stink about it. And so what he was doing is he didn't even know he had a warrant out for him. He was flying on a Canadian flight from the Caribbean to Canada. Now, not a private plane, a commercial Canadian flight. I don't know if it was Air Canada or what or Canadian, I don't know which flight it was, but a commercial flight full of people. All right. As it flew over New York, the FBI had them declare an air emergency to force the plane to land. This is documented. You can find this. You can Google it. And they forced the plane to land by declaring an air emergency. They never told the pilot or the crew what it was. When it landed, they say air emergency was over. Um, and they never even told the air the pilot was, but they says, oh, but you know what? You landed and we noticed that somebody on your plane is, is wanted by the FBI. So you can't take off until you give them up. Right. So they gave them up. Plane went on to Canada. I mean, a commercial plane full of people. They held the guy in Florida prison, Florida federal prison for two years without a trial. At the end of two years, they came to him. They said, you know, we don't actually have any evidence and we're not going to give you a trial. But if we did, you served your time. So go ahead and go home. And they deported him. And I can, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of cases like this, but that's just one that I know. And I know more even than was published on the internet and in news articles, because I knew I became good friends with his son. Just by hanging out by the, when I was healthy enough, I used to have a, a local hangout on the beach here. And his son used to hang out there and he and I became decent friends and we would just sit around and have a beer. And so I got to know even more of the story and I looked it all up and it's all true. Plus a lot of people here know about the story because um, the uh, his brother was a member of parliament in St. Kitts. And so I, and I, I know his brother as well. 
So I'd already known about the story before I even knew his son. And at one point, we rented an apartment from his nephew. So they do stuff like this all the time. I, I can right. tell you so many cases and documented cases of things like this. And he was warned on charges that are lesser than the charges I'm facing. I mean, and look at the things they've already done to me and continue to do to me. Now you have to ask the question, at what point is, I mean, when I say it's a cover-up, people think I'm crazy, but it is a cover-up. The prosecutor and the FBI agent are trying to cover up what they did. Well, how how old is the prosecutor? Like, is, is it possible she's going to retire? Or No, the prosecutor, Mary Beth Buchanan, you're talking, talking about Mary Beth Buchanan. No, the prosecutor, Christian Trable, is a man. He okay. is early 50s. He's a couple years older than me. I think he's 51 or 52. So he's still got a ways to go to retire. And so far, the whole system has continued to defend itself. They right. won't even look into it. I got set, uh, Congressman Mike Kelly, who's a congressman for Pennsylvania. I signed a, a, a release and everything for him. And all he did was send me a letter and saying, yeah, I checked with the FBI and you are wanted, by the way. And then he's like, and it's like, and the thing about Mike Kelly is Mike Kelly is one of the biggest MAGA heads there is. Those Baggins hate the FBI. This is something Mike Kelly could have congressional testimony over. And he's just like, you're wanted. Look at right now, the U.S. Women's Olympic team is suing the FBI for $1 billion for them covering up that they didn't act basically with the Larry Nassar accusations. Right. The FBI withheld evidence for like over a year or it was a year or more. And more young, uh, some of them were even teenagers, more women and girls on the U.S. Women's Olympic team were sexually assaulted because the FBI withheld information for like a year or two. And there was congressional testimony. And now they're suing them for not $1 million, $1 billion. The FBI does crap like this all the time. When they goof up, they don't fess up. They cover no. up. And it's no different in this case. Yeah. I've, but in I've, my I've, case, it's so extreme that I have trouble pe getting people to believe even the stuff that I can prove. That's why I said I hesitate to go into the other things that happened to me as far back as 2002. But I've yeah. got other stories I can tell you as well. Yeah, I've, I've, I don't I've, know if they're connected. I wrote, but all I know is something is really wrong here. I'm dying and I'm begging for help because the FBI keeps intimidating me. My life is on the line here and they've destroyed my career. They destroyed my health. They destroyed my finances. I mean, everybody in the island knows I'm wanted. I've been front page news down here numerous times when I used to, when I was healthy enough. It's been almost two years since I've been healthy enough to even go out to my favorite hangout or anywhere. I've only left the house three times in the last year. Once was to go for a medical scan and it was really difficult. And we almost needed an ambulance. My son had to drive me. Um, but when I used to go to the beach bar, in fact, my friend I was telling you about and the locals, they, because the cruise ships, we get a million cruise ships and they would bring the cruise ship people to my, to my beach hangout among other places. And the locals would tell the tourists off the cruise ship, be like, yo, you want to see something? You see that guy sitting over there? He's wanted by the FBI and Interpol, and they've been after him for like 15 years. And they'd be like, no way that's true. They'd be like, yeah, go talk to him. He'll talk to you. And they'd come over, because Americans, when they don't know somebody, they're always, you know, they tend to be very polite. Right. And they come over and be like, um, excuse me, sir. I don't, I don't mean to butt into your business thing. We're just here on vacation, and you have such a beautiful island. You live here, right? And they're like, yeah. Like, but... I don't so much care. I just wanted you to know what that gentleman over there is saying about you because you live here and you should know. And he's saying you're wanted by the FBI and Interpol and they've been after you like 15 years and you've been through like multiple extraditions and you spent time in Bulgarian prison. And I just wanted you to know what he's saying about you. I'm like, well, that's all true. So, and then they'd be like, can I buy you a beer? And then we sit down and we talk it out. And one time somebody even went back and made a blog post about me that's not up anymore. But I mean, this is the kind of stuff that it's such an, it's everybody knows down here. I'm a tourist attraction, basically. My daughter, when my daughter was like 11, 
one of the ambassador's kids, because it's a small island, so she goes to school with a bunch of, you know, everybody goes to school with kids that are part of the ambassador. You know, they're kids of the ambassadors from different countries. So one of the ambassador's kids was at her school and he came to her and he's like, is your dad wanted by the FBI? And she's like, yep. And the kid's like, no way, you're just lying. It's just a rumor. He's like, go ask your dad. Because she knew his dad was one of the ambassadors. And the kid came back the next day and he's like, you're right, your dad is wanted by the FBI. That's so cool. But I mean, 11 year olds are talking about me here. This is the stuff we have to deal with here. And the whole time, the prosecutor in the public, in the paper, he's like, after his extradition was failed, Mr. Howard fled to St. Kitts and the government of St. Kitts will not extradite him because they're protecting him. I didn't flee here. I loved, I lived here before any of this crap happened and they knew I was here the entire time. The whole country knows I'm wanted down here. You could get off a plane it might take five people to ask where the fugitive lives. Well, they might ask you which one because there are actually a couple others here, but they're not even anything like me and it's not the Americans that want them and it's their, their stories are basically nothing. But, all right. Um, There's a Russian guy here wanted for something that's bullshit. It's, it's such a small charge anyways that, you know, it's not even a bother, but everybody knows that story too. And so there are a couple other people that are of interest, but not really anything like me. So if they ask you which fugitive, you say, oh, the American one, they'll be like, okay, yeah, we know where he lives. Well, all right. I mean, I, you, so you, you've got a TikTok. You okay? Mm-hmm. You got a TikTok, the TikTok account. You started a YouTube channel. Very recently. Okay. I just started because my health was so bad. I was struggling to do TikTok. And the reason I did TikTok was every other platform required me to type. And as you can see, Right. Plus, it's painful. If I do this repetition, it runs up here and it's very painful for me. And a lot of times my vision is blurry too, so it's very hard. So if I'm able to type a paragraph or two, that's a big deal. And even speaking like this on a good day, I'm getting winded. So I, I'm still able to cope, but you can see it is affecting me. I mean, I've done TikTok lives where I've almost where I've almost passed out on the live. I've been passed out to the hospital a couple times here. They had to revive me. Um, so, but the... um. I just recently, because now I've been getting a little bit better, I've been starting to push, I've been starting to produce more produced videos and I'm starting to push out. So in like two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I started pushing to Facebook Reels, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, So they're not, like I only have 70 users on, I only have 70 followers on YouTube, but I only have 50 videos. So, and they're all shorts. (laughs) There's like three videos and 47 shorts. My Instagram has gone up to like 250. I've had my Instagram maybe a month or more, but um, I'm trying to get into the platforms, but TikTok is my primary. I have 135,000 followers in TikTok, 3.7 million likes. I have 60 viral videos. I have 8.9 million views this week alone on TikTok. But every time I get a media contact, the FBI shuts them down. Right. Have you done a lot of interviews like this? Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done other podcasts. I was on Daisy Maskell. She's a UK celebrity. She was on BBC. I did Daisy Maskell last year. I've done some very small YouTubers. I interviewed with a guy in Australia who said he's still working on it. He said it's going to take him two or three months to put it together. I guess that's his process. Hmm. Um, but every journalist I get, everybody who contacts the FBI ends up ghosting me because the FBI tells them to bugger off, not invest in their affairs, and tells them what a horrible person I am. Oh, they also told the, um, they love the magic baby. What they do is in... Diplomatic communications, U.S. government will put the word maybe in front of something. 
The, and so they've done this on multiple occasions. So when they swatted us in Cyprus in 2002, by the way, they said we were drug dealers. The U.S. The government of Cyprus never found anything, and the government of Cyprus had to apologize to us and ask us not to sue them, and they told us it came from the embassy, and I have other reasons that I know it came from the embassy as well. There's other ties to the embassy, several of them. But they, um, they used that, and they told the government of St. Kitts in a diplomatic communication after the kidnap failed, after the extradition failed, oh, they tried to abduct me possibly in 2011 too. We can talk about that if you want. But they sent a diplomatic communication down here that they said they have evidence I may be a former drug dealer. And they used the evidence of when they swatted me in St. Kitts to do that, even though the government never found anything. I've never dealt in drugs. I never even used drugs until recently. And now, yes, I use medical marijuana. I never even touched marijuana until I was like 46 or 47 because I grew up in the war on drugs age where marijuana is crack. I never even right. smoked a cigarette. The only drugs I've ever had are prescription drugs or alcohol. And even alcohol, I never even drank that much. I was never really into drinking that much. I would go to the beach and have a beer or something. But... I've often gone years or months without drinking. It didn't bother me, and I don't drink anymore because of my health, but they use that. And the problem is when the U.S. government says something like, we have evidence you may be, or this person may be a drug dealer, the foreign government doesn't even, the maybe is just like an afterthought. Yeah. They read drug dealer. But then when you disprove that and you point out, you prove, you say, listen, what evidence have you been shown? Nothing. And then I show the word maybe. And then once I go through all this stuff and convince them, like, well, yeah, I guess you're right. The maybe is there. But they're like, why would the U.S. government do that to you? You're a U.S. citizen. And so it's so hard to overcome this disbelief. And they've done that on so many times. And some of that I have copies of. Some of it I don't. When I was in Bulgaria, I used to have a friend here, and he passed away a few years ago. But he had a private plane. And it's a, it was like a Cessna. It only held six people, including the pilot, right? Right. And he would fly charters to, like, the nearby islands. People want to go on golfing trips or whatever. And he, right before I left, he was like, uh, here, here, take my card. And so he gave me his card, and it literally had a picture of a Cessna on the plane, and I forget what it was, like, Mike's Charters. And it was obvious that he didn't have jets. It was obvious he was not a big pilot. It was very clear that the dude had a small Cessna. Right. Okay? And they found that card when they seized my stuff in Bulgaria, and from that, in the evidence that they sent to Bulgaria and the Pennsylvania courts and the St. Kitts courts, they said, we have evidence that his wife may be chartering a flight to hide the child in Russia while the father is in Bulgaria. Now, you don't have to know much about planes to know that a Cessna doesn't fly to Russia. No. no. And so in a, in a charter flight to Russia, you're looking at like a million dollars or something. But this is the kind of crap they threw out there. And their evidence was this business card that, you know, Mike's charter with a picture of a Cessna on it. And it clearly says for up to five passengers on the card. I mean, they knew, and they just, they take any seed and then just to accuse me of all kinds of things. I mean, they tried in 2011, um, 2010 or 2011, I can look up the exact date. I get a call on my cell phone here, my private cell phone, which is not in the phone book, not published, not handed out to anybody. I can remember because it was before we moved to where we are now when we lived in the apartment before. And I remember because I was in the bedroom, I get a call. And it was, it wasn't a St. Kitts number and, but it's Caribbean. And I'm like, I answered, I'm like, hello. And they're like, this is the U S embassy in Barbados. And at first I'm like, how did you get my phone number? You know? Right. And they're like, we're trying to do a welfare check on your son. And this is meanwhile, the extraditions have already failed. They've already tried to kidnap him. The poster's still up saying they don't know where he is, but the U S embassy is calling me on my personal private cell phone here in St. Kitts. And I don't have a recording that call, but I do have some of the emails. Because after, um, 
after they got the phone call, I was like, um, we need to communicate by email. I did talk to them. And he's like, we want to check on your son. And I'm like, let's record this. Let's do an email. And then they call me a couple more times. I'm like, let's go to email. And so I have a couple emails. And they were basically like, um, we're coming to St. Kitts to visit your son. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like a good idea. And I was basically, I told him, listen, I said, I remain open-minded, but I'm assuming you're aware of the history of this case, even if you deny it to me. You have to be aware of what's going on. There's no way that you called me and are not aware of the history of this case. But I said, just in case you aren't of everything, I explained to other things. And they're like, well, okay, but no worries. We just want to come visit and talk to your son. And I was like, I'm, I'm still not. I said, what's in it for me? Why would I do this? And they're like, well, transparency. I'm like, and I said, okay, I agree. But here are my terms. We will meet at police headquarters in the chief of police's office. Because I knew the chief of police because... For a while down here, I was repairing computers and I, I was the most qualified person in the island. So the government was hiring me to do things. And I had repaired the several of the police. I actually fixed the inter help. They wanted me to help fix the Interpol system here one time. That was fun. <laughs> They're like, the Interpol system's not working. Can you help us fix it? I'm like, yeah, I suppose I could. Just go against everything I believe at this point. But yeah. <laughs> so, so I knew the chief of police. It wasn't a big ask. And I just was like, I called him like, hey, this is what's going on. They knew I was wanted because they'd been involved in the extraditions. And I'm like, they want to come visit. Can we meet in your office? And he's like, yeah, sure. And um, so I messaged that back uh, to the U.S. Embassy. I'm like, okay, we can meet, but it's going to have to be in the police headquarters, uh, in the chief of police office, and the chief of police will be present and probably other police officers as well because of the history. And he says, yeah, I've been advised that you're violent and I'm bringing a security team with me as well. And I'm like, yeah, we're done. We're done. And I told him, I said, okay, we're done. That's it. And so I think what was happening, I think they were planning on abducting me. Right. I think yeah. they were going to get me at another point and they're going to abduct me. And they have done that to other people here. Two things I can also tell you is one, when we got the letter, when they wrote back to Congressman Mike Kelly in 2022, the letter from the FBI came back from the FBI violent crime section. So they're telling everybody I'm violent, even though there's no history whatsoever. Yeah. And they have abducted people off the island before here. What they do is, now they deny this, but you can find newspaper articles about people they've done this to. In fact, there's a New York Times article where the FBI went to the courts and the courts ruled that the FBI can abduct people on foreign soil, even if it's illegal inside that country to do it. So they do it all the time. Well, I actually- What they did was, there was a guy here, and this was early 2000s or late 90s, and they wanted him for something, and I forget what it was. It, was. it wasn't even a big deal. And so they knew which beach bar he hung out at. So they brought a, a power boat, like a party boat in with a couple agents on it. And they came, in, they came ashore um, legally. They checked in and everything. They came ashore, and they started partying with the guy and started buying him drinks. They're like, hey, man, you're pretty cool. And you know what? We got this boat here. You want to go out and party on our boat? And dude's like, yeah, I want to go party on the boat because he's all drunk now, right? They took him to Antigua, where U.S. Coast Guard boat was waiting, took him back to the U.S. And because he went voluntarily, it was legal. Sometimes they even bring out women and will get them like, hey, you're hot. Let me buy you a drink. And they take him on a boat. They do it all the time. And not just here. This is not like a St. Kitts thing. No, I, I know a guy who actually owned a, a, a private security company, and they had a contract where, and there, there are contracts available where, let's say, the DEA wants somebody. And they 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 and they they know they're in another country that the DEA can't go into or FBI can't go grab them, but they say, listen, if you call us and tell us the guys here at this airport, we'll give you a check for like two hundred fifty thousand dollars and take him no questions asked. 
So they wash the guy for a week, make sure it's him, throw a, a black bag over their head, hit him with the taser, throw him into a van, drive him to the airport, put him on a plane and fly him into the U.S. And they call him just as they're landing at an airport and say, hey, come pick up. I go, this is who we've got. Come pick him up. They show up. They give him a check, pick up the guy. It's over. The problem is when I tell these stories, people are like, the U.S. government would never do that. I watch Law and Order. They're not allowed to do that. The FBI never does anything like that. And even when I tell people, the FBI is like, we don't do stuff. And I, I know this happens all the time. We've had people on the, we've had people follow us here. We've had so cars I, that have followed my kids. I've my been, younger kids, they've had people follow them. I've been in prison with guys that were kidnapped out of their own country. Out of their own country. They were, they were come, they were, they were taken. I mean, matter of fact, there, there's a, um, in, in South Africa, there was a bank robber and his girlfriend, well, they were both bank robbers. And, and the, the FBI, um, the FBI, literally, there was no extradition from South Africa at that time. And the FBI called the local police department and said, we are going to be in this area. We have two of our citizens that are wanted. Okay. So there was a bank robber and a male bank robber and his accomplice, which was his girlfriend. They were living in, they had fled to South Africa. The FBI called up the local police because there was no extradition for South Africa at the time. They called up the local police and said, listen, we have two of our citizens in your jurisdiction. We're coming to pick them up. Don't come in the area. And the local police said, no problem. They drove there. They followed them. They went to the house. They arrested the girl. They followed the girl in. They arrest both of them, put them in a van, drive them to the local airport, throw them on a plane and fly them out. Like I, I know guys that were kidnapped in their own countries where it's like a guy in Brazil, a guy in, you know, where they're like, no, you won't believe it. I was in my own country. They're like, I was in my own country. And they, they just fucking threw me in a van. He said the whole time kicking and screaming, you're kidnapping me. Got him on a plane, got in front of the judge in the United States and said, they kidnapped me. And the judge would say, well, you're here now. Yep. And I've been trying to tell reporters this. And reporters like, the FBI would never do that. That's illegal. And if, if they did, it'd be inadmissible in court. I'm like, you don't understand. Yeah, they, that's it's stupid. They're idiots. That, that's no, because they it, don't understand. They don't know. They, they don't know. They watch too much, like you said, just looks like too much law and order. Your brain watched. I, I tell people law and order is about as realistic as a courtroom as... Um, uh, uh, the movie, hold on, John, John McClane. Oh, oh, um, Die Hard. Die Hard 4, where the kid pulls out a, you know, 1990 cell phone and hacks a satellite in 30 seconds. I'm like, that's about as realistic as Law and Order is with the courtroom. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's like, if you're innocent and you have all the evidence, and I even believe you, just turn yourself in and go before a court of law and dismiss it. So why don't you do it? You must be guilty if you want to turn yourself in. I'm like, they'll never give me a trial. They Listen, would never, ever bring this to trial. I what? guarantee you everything I have left, this prosecutor will never allow this to come before a dryer. Before a Not just that, yeah. they're holding you. Let, let me tell you something else. This is what's really upsetting. I know guys they've just let die. Like I've said, there, was, there have actually been guys that have showed up at Coleman, been transferred, showed up, went straight to the unit, went to the went straight to the to the officer and said, listen, I have asthma. I have a very extreme uh, uh, case of asthma. They didn't give me my inhaler. I have to get my inhaler. And the, the officers are like, well, you have to wait until after count. Then they wait till after count. Now it's five o'clock. They go straight to medical. Medical's like, yeah, you'll have to wait till tomorrow morning. Come to pill, uh, sick, you know, the uh, uh, they call it um, pill line or, or sick call. And the guy's like, look, you don't understand. If I don't, I, I, I may die. They're like, well, you're going to either go to the shoe or you could, you know, like, there's no medical here. Go back to the unit. And the guy goes back to a unit. Boom. Next day, wakes up dead. 
He's just Jesse um, on TikTok. There's Jesse Crosson, JD Delay. There's several prison former prisoners on TikTok. They talk about medical all the time. Jesse told a story about a guy that had cancer. They gave him t- Tylenol, told him to suck it up, or a guy that had kidney issues that died because they delayed his dialysis. My condition is actually so bad that even in my medical report, it says even though I need an air ambulance to travel, even the air ambulance needs to be as short as possible. I need to go to a nearby island, not be flying. Miami is 1,400 miles away. And even an air ambulance in that distance puts me at risk. I need to fly somewhere close. And they won't allow me to travel anywhere close to get health care. I'm, at this point, I'm begging you. Listen, I have a huge story. Someday we all know this is going to be a massive Netflix special. And it's going to be the one of the biggest stories out there. But until I get somebody who will not only not be afraid of the FBI, but will run with this story, somebody could make their career off of this. And I'm begging people, and I just can't because the FBI keeps scaring them. Listen, my, my heart goes out to you. Um, I, I know you're not feeling good. We've been on here. This is Don't... me in a good, no, this is me on a good day. A lot of days I can't even get up and walk around barely. The fact that I got up and went to the dog for two minutes is a big deal for me. There's days I can't even shower. You see on TikTok, sometimes on TikTok, you see I have a beard. That's because I can't even stand up to take a shower. So the more stubble I have, that's the worse off I am. My original TikToks, when I started TikTok last May, my first TikToks, I was holding up signs drawn in crayon by my daughter because I couldn't talk. I mean, I could, I, I was, I could, but it was just, I couldn't get sentences out. Right. For a long time, my wife had to call the lawyer. We have a, we have a lawyer who's a former federal prosecutor. And even he can't make any headway because they keep blocking our petitions. And he's a former federal prosecutor. And we gave the last bit of money. Our finances are running out. We have serious financial problems. We didn't have the money we gave that lawyer. That was another 100000 And we're out. We are millions of dollars into this thing. Not counting my lost income. I mean, I am, at some point, I don't know what's going to give out first. I'm in a race to a heart attack, kidney failure, stroke, financial failure. I, I don't know what. But I'm desperate and I don't know where to turn. Because the FBI keeps intimidating people. How do, I mean, how, how, I don't understand why I have this story. I mean, I see all these documentaries on Netflix that are just ridiculous. And the FBI's normal excuse is, he's a fugitive. You can be in trouble for talking to a fugitive. That's what they tell the reporters. They tell them, if you talk to a fugitive, that could be considered aiding and abetting. And that's a criminal charge. And that's what they tell them. Yeah. And then the reporter's like, enough of that. I had a CNN producer on my live for more than an hour and I interviewed with him and he's ghosted me since he talked to the FBI. Well, listen, I, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. I appreciate you talking to me. We'll stay in contact. I, I will, I will let you know when we're going to post this by all means post it, you know, uh, uh, let's do something, you know, a connection where you can post something simultaneous on your TikTok. try and direct people to it. Yeah, of course. What kind of time frame are you looking at? What What are your plans? I mean, give me some kind of hope here because a week. I'm just desperate. I'm begging for my life. I don't know what to say. I sold two right. kids under 18. I'm begging for my life. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. Do me a favor. Look in the description box and click the link for uh um for all of the all the different uh, for the TikTok that we talked about for the his, uh for his YouTube channel for everything across the board. Um, if anybody does know anybody that can help out by all means, contact me. Um, I will put you in, in contact with Chad, uh, or you could go to his, his TikTok or YouTube channel. Um, I can give you his email. If you contact me, I'll actually, I'll put his email in the description box also. 
And Telegram is actually the best way. Telegram. Telegram. Okay. I'll put a link to Telegram. Telegram's the best way. So uh, to contact him, I appreciate you guys watching. If you like the video, do me a favor, subscribe, hit the bell, leave me a message. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. See ya. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but when I was locked up, I wrote a whole bunch of true crime books, and all of the books are on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Audible, their eBooks. Check out the trailers. Using forgeries and bogus identities, Matthew B. Cox, one of the most ingenious con men in history, built America's biggest banks out of millions. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state, and federal authorities, Cox narrowly and quite luckily, avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the Housing Pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive, and a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent, how a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Buried by the U.S. government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, no one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Service's funds, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began work to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo 
while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the US government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. The bizarre, true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Pierre Rossini, in the 1990s, was a 20-something-year-old Los Angeles-based drug trafficker of ecstasy and ice. He and his associates drove luxury European supercars, lived in Beverly Hills penthouses, and dated Playboy models while dodging federal indictments. Then, two FBI officers with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force entered the picture. Dirty agents willing to fix cases and identify informants. Suddenly, two of Rossini's associates, confidential informants working with federal law enforcement, were murdered. Everyone pointed to Rossini. As his co-defendants prepared for trial, U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller sat down to debrief Rossini at Leavenworth Penitentiary, and another story emerged. A tale of FBI corruption and complicity in murder. You see, Pierre Rossini knew something that no one else knew. The truth. And Robert Mueller and the federal government have been covering it up to this very day. Devil Exposed. A twisted tale of drug trafficking, corruption, and murder in the City of Angels. Available on Amazon and Audible. Bailout is a psychological true crime thriller that pits a narcissistic conman against an egotistical pathological liar. Marcus Shrinker, the money manager who attempted to fake his own death during the 2008 financial crisis, is about to be released from prison and he's ready to talk. He's ready to tell you the story no one's heard. Shrinker sits down with true crime writer Matthew B. Cox, a fellow inmate serving time for bank fraud. Shrinker lays out the details. The disgruntled clients who persecuted him for unanticipated market losses, the affair that ruined his marriage, and the treachery of his scorned wife, the woman who framed him for securities fraud, leaving him no choice but to make a bogus distress call and plunge from his multi-million dollar private aircraft in the dead of night. The $11.1 million in life insurance, the missing $1.5 million in gold. The fact is, Shrinker wants you to think he's innocent. The problem is, Cox knows Shrinker's a pathological liar and his story's a fabrication. As Cox subtly coaxes, cajoles, and yes, cons Shrinker into revealing his deceptions, his stranger-than-fiction life of lies slowly unravels. This is the story Shrinker didn't want you to know. Bailout, The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. Available now on Barnes & Noble, Etsy, and Audible. Matthew B. Cox is a con man, incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a variety of bank fraud-related scams. Despite not having a drug problem, Cox inexplicably ends up in the prison's residential drug abuse program, known as RDAP, a drug program in name only. RDAP is an invasive behavior modification therapy specifically designed to correct the cognitive thinking errors associated with criminal behavior. The program is a non-fiction dark comedy which chronicles Cox's side-splitting journey. This first-person account is a fascinating glimpse at the survivor-like atmosphere inside of the government-sponsored rehabilitation unit. While navigating the treachery of his backstabbing peers, Cox simultaneously manipulates prison policies and the bumbling staff 
every step of the way. The program. How a con man survived the Federal Bureau of Prisons' cult of RDAP. Available now on Amazon and Audible. If you saw anything you like, links to all the books are in the description box.